What's up, everybody? I'm back with another edition of the Macro Insights Podcast, where I bring in uh, my Tuesday night Twitter spaces, or I guess now X spaces, uh, and I pull in the audio from that. I have a bunch of great guests. I have uh, you know some updates on macro, Canadian housing, uh, overall housing market in the U.S., uh, jobs reports, much, much more. It's a long, action-packed episode. There's also uh, a little bit of a hiccup in the middle where audio is dropped. Um, so you uh, about, you know, around an hour, 10 minutes or so in. So um, I will uh, put a little break in there and uh, let you guys know where I dropped, uh, unfortunately. But yeah, and as always, ladies and gentlemen, this is not financial advice. Everything you hear in this uh, podcast is strictly the opinion of myself and the speakers and nobody in here was a financial advisor giving financial advice. Also, big shout out to my sponsor, Idaho Armored Vault. Bob Coleman and his team are giving you the lowest premiums possible in order to get yourself some exposure to the precious metals market. So go ahead and give them a ring. Uh, go to goldsilvervault.com. Shout out to Bob and his team. Get a hold of them and yeah, man, go ahead and get yourself a, some exposure to that precious metals market if you see that as a good fit for your portfolio. All right, enough for me. Let's get into the episode. Whoosh. What's up, buddy? What you got for us? Uh, I have a question for you. I have a small mortgage that I kept at low interest rate. Uh, just kind of been borrowing against it, buying oil stocks. It's been a very good idea in the last couple of years. Um, but it comes for renewal in two months. Uh, what do you think about like the variables, the fixed kind of directionally? Not seeking investment advice by any point, by any means, like not or uh, or financial advice, but mostly kind of where, where do you see the interest rates kind of heading? Is it? Uh, I'm thinking kind of shorter duration, uh, you know, and just kind of see if I just want when I just close it. But um, yeah. Anyway, any thoughts? Yeah, I mean that's. I mean, I've been completely off on the, on the interest rate trade, um, but I mean, from where I mean it's standing now, it looks like the Bank of Canada is still probably going to be, at least hold rates here. Um, so I mean, yeah, the, I mean, I guess it depends on wh- what you're looking at, but. Uh, I feel like you would have more potential to downside with the variable, right? Because if you lock in fixed, I mean, that's kind of, that's that. Um, and then obviously it depends on kind of how the mortgage is set up. Sometimes they won't like they'll, they'll charge like almost like a prepayment if people want to actually refinance at lower rates, just depending on the mortgage. Um, but I mean, variable, I would see less room to the upside and more kind of potential to the downside. So, I mean, if you were looking at something like that, variable would probably in my opinion be the better bet at where we're sitting today right because you have like i would say more of a limited upside but more of like a potential large side potential to the down uh side if we do start to go into next year with the bank of canada starting to lower rates like even if they drop them 100 basis points you're going to be better off in a variable than you would be in a fixed Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, I agree with that. Or uh, variable, kind of, or the shortest term, term possible for fixed, and kind of reevaluate. Yeah, yeah, that as well. I mean, yeah, you could do like a super what, like a one-year fixed, 
and then just see where things are then. But still, I mean, I feel like just from the, the rate standpoint, still the variable would probably be the better bet. Um, but yeah, I mean, the people that locked in fixed two years ago are, are sitting pretty. The people that locked in variable have gotten absolutely like crucified but um yeah yeah my issue my issue was i wasn't sure if i wanted to stay at the same house so i was kind of like oh i'll take like two years like two percent something but now i'm retrospectively looking back like oh ouch you know (laughs) but it is what it is yeah dude (laughs) the canadian housing situation is just so wild to me um i hear like basically everybody's gonna have to refinance out of their house or like sell essentially, right? I mean, within the next couple of years, because a lot of those variable rate mortgages are going to start coming up and they're all, people are about to get screwed, huh? So there, there is a, just a quick jump on that. It's going to be like a lot of credit rehabilitation programs that is going to be developed there. Uh, so they're going to essentially just kind of, I guess, use that to uh like credit rehabilitation in order to avoid a bunch of people defaulting on their mortgage so essentially like kicking the can down the road it sounds like in particular because we couldn't withstand a large depreciation of our mortgage environment um and specifically in relations to the variable rate that's issued within canada um so by definition with the government the fiscal response and the current like institutional response is going to be that where there's going to be like divots of silos where credit is going to be divided within that uh apologies for that i do have to get back to the meeting sorry for that green for me, I'm, uh, I think I'm fairly lucky because um, I've been doing a good use of kind of that money that I've been borrowing, but uh, kind of just retrospectively, it uh, seems like a really good idea, right? But, uh, but now I have to face that, that situation where whether like just to pay it off or just continue kicking the can on the road. And the one thing, the way I look at it is, uh, is basically, so I live in Calgary. And we essentially have like a natural hedge with uh, BC and uh, Ontario because the prices there are like double than, than here. And so if, you know, we're feeling the pain here on on the rates and kind of like the the actual money that we have to pay in like dollars, then it's, it's essentially like a double in those provinces. So in a way we kind of, I don't know if it makes sense, but like if the pain is here, is, is, uh, if it's painful here, it's like people are, you know, there's blood on the streets there, right? So that's kind of the way I look at it. And so that's why I'm thinking, you know, there's very limited uh, um, amount that Bank of Canada can raise. I think, you know, and it's been my view for a couple of years now that uh, at the end of the day, what's going to hurt is the Canadian dollar probably. So, which is, I think now it's like 74. I have no idea why it's so high, but uh, probably because of the resources we have. Uh, which in a funny way also benefits the oil companies because oil companies, um, uh, the capex is in Canadian dollars, but they get paid in U.S. dollars. So if you think about it, like you, you, it really benefits you when the, the U.S. dollar is strong because um, for those companies, because you always want to kind of operate in local currency and get paid in U.S. dollar in stronger currency. So, uh, so I kind of find, you know, I'm in between those two worlds in a way, kind of like 
um, yeah, the my value of my money will depreciate, but the 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 money is working being invested in companies that benefit from that in a way, you know? So, or maybe it's just my selective bias and I'm just mentally playing gymnastics, mental gymnastics with myself, you know? But yeah, would love to hear your thoughts. No, I mean, I, I definitely think that Canadian producers are going to probably do pretty well, um, just given the weakness of the Canadian dollar. Um, and as you mentioned, the fact that, you know, they're getting paid in U.S. I think is going to be kind of a massive benefit for these guys. Um, but I mean, I, I I expect the Canadian dollar to probably end up being much weaker than the U.S. I mean, it has been essentially over the last two years. I mean, I know that the first time oil ran up, um, the anticipation was for the Canadian dollar to strengthen a lot, but it actually, I think, went down to like 121. That would be U.S. dollar against Canadian. And then you know, next thing you know, we were at like the 130 range. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think that just where the U.S. is now um, in terms of kind of its economic outlook, I think we'll probably continue to have the U.S. dollar outperform the Canadian one. So, I mean, for the oil producers, that's definitely going to be a net benefit. Yeah, and I think that too it'll be interesting to see because we're already seeing, um, you know, well, hasn't Canada already kind of pivoted the the other direction and started to lower rates, or am I am I incorrect there? Because I know China has started to do that and print um, and go through some QEs, so I wouldn't be surprised if Canada started at this point. No, no, Canada hasn't actually started to cut. They were like one of the first banks. I mean, they were the first bank to actually start hiking to their credit. Um, but they've paused twice. They paused, what, like three months ago, four months ago. Then they resumed policy and now they've paused again. Um, they paused one meeting before the Fed paused. So, um, yeah, I mean, thus far, I think anticipations are for Canada to start cutting before the U.S., though. Yeah, it seems like Canada is always kind of the the guinea pig for the U.S. before the U.S. starts starts to move or do anything, um, which is you know obviously you know pretty interesting to to keep an eye on. But you know everybody in the U.S. doesn't really pay attention to Canada until uh, until something crazy happens there. And even then, I don't even know if people in the U.S. really even pay too close of a de- attention to to Canada, but. Yeah, I mean, I, I hear all the time coming on these spaces about how the Canadian real estate market is just like crazy and it's about to, you know, of course, like a lot of foreign investment has come in and it's uh, not looking all bright um, for that, which is uh, unfortunate. Yeah, when, when you truly understand what's going on, it's slightly frightening. And I think like the, the better strategy would have been uh, from, you know, kind of, that mortgage perspective to be more aligned with us because if you are kind of you know committed to to the big daddy you know like you have to kind of mimic everything in a way where right now we have a situation where bank of canada trying to mimic uh, the fed but they can't because the nature of you know policies associated with mortgage terms and everybody did the same thing essentially but 
not you know too many people in the U.S. have to renew in the next couple of years, where in our case is also almost like a mandatory thing, um, and that's where the issue comes in play because, like, what do you do? And, and it's too late to revert policy because now those are the rates. You, you can't just like go two years ago and say no, no, we're gonna give you like those you know thirty-year terms at the, at that fixed rate, right? Which is I also find that concept fascinating because. Considering everything we know now about rates, how you know how does the uh, that kind of ecosystem works at when the borrowers borrow at such low rate? I mean, there's this really huge benefit to U.S. Uh, citizens, right, consumers, uh, real estate uh, holders when it comes to that policy. I think a very similar example I could use from the other point of view is, for example. You, uh, you in U.S., whoever is here from U.S., you guys have 401k. So most of my investments, uh, which is basically holding oil stocks, are in registered accounts. So 401k, Roth IRA, but because I'm Canadian, I hold it in RSP and TFSA because I also have a full-time job. So there is a huge tax benefit for me to every year contribute to my RSP, which is 401k take the tax deduction, take that money and put it in my TFSA, which is 401k, uh, which is Roth IRA. What, what's unique about U.S. that really benefits Canadians is that in our TFSAs, which is your Roth IRAs, if your salary is over 150000 I think, base salary, you don't have any contribution room. Correct me if I'm wrong. But in our case, you always get the contribution room. So I can always take that benefit and do that. The other thing that I found that I could not, there wouldn't be a way for me to do it if I was living in the U.S. as a high, uh, high-paid profession, high-paid professional. Is that if I was contributing the way I did to RSP and having this capital there to basically go all in in the late 2020 in individual oil stocks uh, in uh, 401k, you you guys are unable to do that. You have to uh, go into like mutual funds. There are high fees, but also it's, you know, it basically market type of performance to mimic maybe S&P or, you know, there are some nuances with those funds, but you, you wouldn't expect, like, let's say, like, a you know, a thousand percent return or like, a you know, two thousand percent return over like two, three years. It would, and, and then it wouldn't even be responsible of you to allocate that kind of money in individual stock being super concentrated and getting those type of gains in your uh, Roth IRA. And so just the way it benefits Canadians from the point of view of like those random policies that just in, in place and it's up to like individuals to, and, and you know, I've been always fascinated with finances. I've been always fascinated with taxes being a very like, like I pay a lot of taxes. Like I pay almost, um, I would say two and a half times of like average salary for a typical Canadian in just taxes, right? So for me, I have to be like really smart how, you know, being mindful of that because, you know, and, and this is something I've been doing for many years now. And and I'm just realizing that what I've done here in Canada wouldn't be possible to do in U.S. But from the other side, and that's how we started this conversation, um, if you have real estate in U.S., you have basically zero incentive to sell now, you know, just so you can borrow at much higher rates. And that's, I think, you know, it's it's common knowledge at this point where, you know, it's essentially like it's kind of counterproductive in a way because you, you, you want to, you know, 
you, you want people in a way, um, well, I don't want to say lose jobs, but you want, you know, less jobs. You want to see kind of money disappearing, right, from, from people's pockets. But in a way, every, like, when it comes to real estate, everything is just kind of stagnant. And, and I find those two concepts extremely fascinating because for us as Canadians, we're very small. I think there's like about 40 million Canadians, which, by the way, like I think something like a million people not accounted for, which still live here, but they somehow were missed. And yeah, anyway, but um, we, we're trying to kind of mimic our Bank of Canada, trying to mimic the Fed to sustain some kind of normalcy in, in, the, in the trade from the trade aspect of things, you know. But at the same time, there are certain certain things that are extremely impossible to even kind of comprehend when from the differences. So when we talk about Canadian real estate, it's not like, you know, there's this kind of misunderstanding of why. And and the why is really is that we, we just have a very different different rules. We're playing almost like a different game. And that's why I I agree with Deer and, and that's something I mentioned before. I think that the really the Scapegoat here is going to be probably the Canadian dollar. You mean the loony? Yeah, the loony, the toonies, yeah. But but yet I was thinking that for some time now, and and yet our dollar is still Canadian dollar is still kind of holding in there, you know, despite the uh, somewhat of a weakness, I guess. But I don't consider that a weakness at all. All things considered, you know. Um, and another fascinating thing, and I'm sure it's common knowledge at this point. I don't know why I'm sharing. You all guys, like we're all very smart. What's really fascinating for us is that in that um, environment of people going and renewing their mortgages, you would expect people kind of, you know, basically selling, not able to finance their real estate, um, taking the the money they made and moving elsewhere, but. And that's kind of what Bank of Canada wants in a way, because they want, you know, they want people to kind of start moving, maybe, you know, just maybe if you lose your job, right? I guess that's the intention of increasing rates. Like, you know, you, you want to see maybe some job losses. And please don't don't take my word for it. I'm sure there's like more nuances. And I see very smart people in this room that could speak about all the aspects of those policies. But in a way, we have... Uh, Another policy by the government is that we really inviting a lot of immigration and uh, refugees, which, you know, Canada is built on refugees and built on immigration. And, you know, I'm a beneficiary of that. At the same time, when it comes to supply and demand, there's this big, you know, issue when it comes to the two policies, because from one point of view, you can't really afford your place. You, you would want to sell collective money. From another aspect, there's really high demand for housing because of immigration, because of refugees. And you have this like two worlds colliding where it's like a really impossible situation. And this could mean that, you know, potential uh, more severe, perhaps. Um, and I want to be careful. I don't want to say we're in recession or not in recession. I don't want to speak about things I don't understand very well. But I think there could be a little bit more suffering uh, on the Canadian border. Than, than in U.S. because of, you know, those type of uh, kind of conflicting, you know, worlds of supply, demand in the real estate market, which, you know, I, I'm trying to kind of compute what's going on here, living in Calgary, having a house, um, borrowing like Kilokin, which is basically I borrowed against my house to invest in oil and gas stocks, which was very beneficial. You know, I, I kind of kept 
um, increasing my position by borrowing at very low rates, which kind of worked out, but now it's time to renew or pay off that mortgage, right? So, but I'm very fortunate that I can do it, that I have that choice. Other people, not as much, right? Anyway, I'll pass the mic uh, to Dear and Neelik. Thank you so much. Of course, man. Thanks for thanks for the input. So I saw Deer had his hand up. So Deer, I'll let you let you take the floor. Yeah, I will say the the one aspect in which uh, Canada can benefit is um, through exports, right? And so, I mean, obviously, you know, with oil and gas um, and the current supply and demand dynamics, usually this increases the terms of trade. Um, for Canada kind of on a global stage and uh, maybe for people who don't know what that is, it's essentially like the amount of input or like import goods an economy can purchase per unit of exports. Um, and so what you actually start to see is as oil prices climb, um, it actually improves Canada's terms of trade. Um, so, I mean, at least from, if we're looking at, you know, income identity uh, in terms of, measurement of GDP, um, you know, C plus I plus G plus net exports, um, at least in the net export component, um, this is an aspect in which Canada will probably benefit going into the, uh, to the end of the year. So that's something to keep in mind as well. Now I'll, I'll pass it over to, to Neely. Hey, thanks. I had a question, um, but I'm realizing I've got two Canadians Two Floridians, yes, I was born in Florida, uh, and a deer. So this is kind of an interesting idea here. Um, how does it work in Canada with property taxes? Like, I know what we do, and I know how it's administered, and I know how it's, you know, the millage rates and what have you. What is, what is the equivalency of property taxes in Canada? I don't think I've ever asked that or know that. So every year we pay property tax. So they, get, they send us, uh, the city will send us like the estimated value for your property. And there'll be this magical equation where they adjust the co like some kind of coefficient. And I would tell you like 100% of the time, the value of a house is like very different from what they say. It could be like, you know, if it's like five hundred thousand dollar house, it could be, it could be like six hundred thousand, or it could be like four hundred thousand. So they're always kind of behind, but they have this equation, and then you basically pay this annual tax, if it makes sense. And then, but it's not outrageous by any means. Like for a, for like a, I would say here in Calgary, for let's say five hundred thousand dollar house, your property tax could be somewhere between like four to five thousand dollars, something like that. And. And, it, and it's adjusted, like, you know, uh, property taxes have different rates in the states based on, like, county, location, comps, et cetera, state. Mm -hmm. Like, is that the same? Like, it could, or is it is it fairly narrow band of dispersion? It's, it's one number, but within that equation, I assume you have all those variables because I can always see how, like, what services they allocate for, Right. Um, but you know, that, that just me like as a, you know, as a Neely, guy, um, guy. Yeah, anyway. one of the big differences and why property taxes tend to be lower in Canada for equivalent value of houses is what they pay for. So I think one of the big differences between the U S and Canada from one I remember is 
much of the school system in the U.S., I think, is paid at the local level through the property taxes. I mean, there is some probably at the state level as well. It's completely inverted in Canada. The province of Ontario pays, the Ministry of Education probably pays 70% of the cost for all the public education system in the province, and maybe 30% is paid by property taxes. So it it is completely inverted. And it's one of the differences. Like when I hear people say, well, you know, Toronto property taxes are really low. Yeah, but... The flip side is your provincial taxes are really high because you're, you know, because you know each each municipality doesn't pay proportionately, right? And and so, you know, one of the things I argue is that you know basically people in smaller towns in Ontario are subsidizing, you know, the people in expensive parts of Toronto's school system, right? Because it is a provincial income tax that pays the bulk of it. Although I, I'm sure the allocations are made, you know, appropriately. But anyway, I think that's the big difference between why uh, the, pro- you know, the, between the property taxes in the U.S. and the property tax in Canada is it's what they pay for. This is really helpful. I think where I'm going with this is, and I just want to make sure I was understanding you correctly, Razor. Um, you're, are you saying that like it's been surprising because you thought that people would basically be like, oh, no, they can't refinance, but somehow, like, the banks are working with them or they're managing to do it. Like, I want to make sure I'm understanding that because I've I've been wondering just this question, just this, just this you know, thing I, I've been living lately in, like, what do you absolutely not know right now, Neely? And just kind of, like, hanging out in that space. And one of them is this idea of, I, I just keep on thinking about all of these city and local budgets at least here in the States, and I'm just going to think of my my city, Minneapolis, where <laughs> they are just loving, right? We're in surplus. We're in budget surplus on our state. Uh, they have somehow figured out how to squander it. Um, and they, and then like on, the, on the, the local level, you know, they are definitely, I think, wanting to keep these property values elevated. And it just makes me wonder this question of like, all of these local entities are going to just completely crater with all of their funding and programs if if something happens to the property values i don't think it's a, an issue personally in minneapolis we're, we're a city who never gets too hot too cold but i do wonder about this in other cities where it might like i've lately been thinking about austin and what have you so i was just wondering if that was similar yeah. to what you might expect over in canada so so one thing i would share that uh, I think it's very unique where I'm from. So I live in Calgary, Alberta, which is like the mecca of the oil sands. We actually, you know, we're somewhat abnormal, I guess, to other cities where um, we're we're very concentrated in this like one big market, which is oil and gas. Uh, I guess the province of Alberta, that applies maybe to Edmonton as well, even though Edmonton is a little bit more kind of, a, I don't know how to frame it, more of a, political city where most people there work for the public sector. Um, but in our case, our uh, property, uh, our real estate properties did not appreciate as much as in Ontario or in BC. So Vancouver and Toronto uh, over the last couple of years. And I basically, most of us look like idiots in a way because, you know, here you you buy, let's say a $300,000 house. Maybe now it's worth like, 400, 500, well, not anymore because they appreciate it. But in, um, you know, in Toronto, it goes like $2 million in a way, you know, over like, let's say 10 years. And, but 
you know, now, you know, as somebody that's renewing right now in the next couple of months, um, you know, I get paid, so I have a, a full-time job, and I'm very fortunate that I'm able to, to pay my bills, potentially pay off this entire mortgage and just not worry about it. But looking at those numbers, I don't really understand, like, like from, from like a really simplistic perspective, how people in Ontario and in BC possibly, and not, I mean, obviously there's maybe, I don't, I don't want to use numbers, but I, I assume there is a portion of population, you know, maybe like um, older people that paid off their mortgages so they don't have to worry about it. But, you know, I'm talking about the simple guys that have a job, blue collar, right? How are they, if they go for renewal, how are they able to do this? Like it, you know, and I have lots of relatives in Israel, and I hear some statistics that people are actually tapping into their um, uh, retirement savings right now in Israel. So that's, I kind of heard it in, in the news there, which is really interesting. So I kind of almost wonder if this is where people are going to go when they have to renew, take some of that money and say, okay, well, for the next year, we're going to be able to pay, you know, that, you know, 7% interest rate for maybe one year fixed. And because Bank of Canada will have no choice, or maybe they will have a choice, I have no idea. Maybe Bill could speak to that because I'm really interested in his view on that. Maybe just kind of kick the can down the road. You you kind of protect yourself for one year, and then you, you see what's going to happen. But I can tell you, like, as somebody that's renewing right now, I, I cannot comprehend how people are going to, you know, pay for it. Maybe it will result in people maybe getting a second job, maybe getting some money from their... Um, you know, for one case, for IRAs, like all the savings. But I don't know, Bill. Do you want do you want to speak to that? Like what? Because you you know the numbers, you know what's going on. So would love your views, especially as somebody that's uh, about to renew my mortgage in Canada. I mean, I don't have a estimate on where rates are going to go in Canada, but it is it, it's a bifurcated market, right? It's the, the, I think the home ownership stats are very similar to the U.S. I think some last time I checked, maybe Deer knows. But I think something like 38% of homeowners in Canada own their home free and clear. Now, again, that's, you know, that's probably people who have lived, like my in-laws, right, who, who have lived in the same house in Toronto since the 70s, right? Like, um, there's a, and there's a lot of them, right? But the flip side of it is I think the stats now are starting to show that um, because um, – rates have gone up that um, many mortgages in Canada, because they're all basically short-term variable, are many of them are now going into negative amortization, right? Which is a problem where your interest doesn't really cover, you know, basically you're not making any principal payments. And in fact, you're actually adding to your principal payments, your principal, right? Because you're not covering the new interest rate. And, and that's going to be a problem when those, when it comes time to reset that mortgage, right? There's probably going to be a capital call where, you know, the banks will probably ask people to actually pay down this accumulated principal since the mortgage was first taken out. So I don't know how it's going to work out. I mean, it is a bifurcated market. I, I, I think it's going to be a kind of a generational issue where, you know, I hate to say it, but I think it's going to be like people who, you know, people are going to have to help their kids or their, you know, to kind of get through this, I guess, because there's enough wealth there, but it's just, it's bifurcated in the home industry, in the kind of the home market. Yeah, what's intriguing about this entire equation is the whole, like, uh, immigration angle of it, you know, kind of, 
because even now I saw like um, some people in my neighborhood, um, they're like having a garage sale and just totally random. I'm like, oh, what, what's going on? Oh, they're like, oh, we're going. We'll she said, we, we're going back. And I see some kind of like, um, like a hard hat from like an oil field, you know? So it's kind of fascinating just to see like real people uh, making decisions based on kind of their situation. So I don't know, intriguing. But at the same time, Neely, I feel uh, kind of sad learning that in Roth IRA, you cannot invest in individual stocks, which puts, in my mind, it puts Americans in a huge disadvantage in my mind, person. That's that's not true, though. You can. You can. Uh, you just need like a self-directed IRA, Roth IRA. You can. Can you, can can buy, you do uh, it? Individual stocks. Okay. Yeah. yeah. With individual stocks. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, Sorry, I'm talking yeah. about 401k. Yeah, 401k, generally speaking, those are like company directed. Right, right. For, and, sorry, for, yeah, you don't really 401k, have, yeah. Yeah, yeah. There are There are some 401ks where you can. Oh, really? Yeah, okay. Well, that's great then. That's That's perfect. Is an Eagle stolen? I think I think she had to drop down. <clears throat> I wanted to talk uh, if she has uh, some availability to come back up. I want to talk a little bit about the jobs report numbers that came out because it is kind of interesting to see what is transpiring with the job reports because it seems like we're, I mean, the estimates are low and the job reports numbers that are coming out are obviously a little bit higher, but um, I don't know. I don't, I just would be curious to hear kind of what Neely has to say if she thinks the numbers are legit. Cause I don't personally buy it just from kind of like anecdotally. I know a lot of people, um, you know, applying for jobs, getting laid off and not being able to really find anything anytime soon. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it just seems like the job market really isn't as strong as maybe the numbers might portray. Um, so yeah, she gave the thumbs down. So I don't know if she, if that means she just can't talk or whatnot, but right now, but yeah, it's kind of an, I, I don't know. It's a, I think it's kind of an interesting time when overall in the, in the job market as to what is actually kind of, uh, uh, actually, you know, transpiring here, but yeah, I don't know. Dear, do you have any thought on like, you know, the, uh, obviously you're not in, the trenches as much but kind of the job reports numbers jolts came out today 9.6 million versus 8.8 .8 million expected um so yeah no no not too much uh information i haven't really been watching jobs probably as closely as i should have been i'll be honest neely would probably be better uh yeah, I know Neely would be great, but she I think she had to drop down, so it's unfortunate. But yeah, I mean we got a bunch of Canadians here and then uh then Jerome Powell, so Jay Powell, dude, are you gonna keep raising? Like what's the deal, man? What are you gonna keep doing throughout the Oh race? yeah, one more time. Just to screw you guys all over. Just for the hell of it. Just for the cherry on top. Well, all right. So, Why what do you not? think? What do you think about the the race next year, right? Because uh, Jerome Powell, as you as you have said yourself verbatim, you're not you don't ex anticipate a hike. 
or uh, excuse me, a pivot until 2025, I believe, uh, is what he said. And then Yellen came out today and said uh, higher for longer might not be as true. So Yellen, when she went to China, she got she actually came away addicted to shrooms. So we're not sure which Yellen we're getting day to day, but she's she's loving them shrooms every day. So I don't know. She's dabbling into some kind of recreational products every day, but half the time she doesn't know where she is. But just a heads up that that's insider information for you. Janet, Janet was probably high on shrooms today. Yeah, yelling, yelling, a little yelling on shrooms, huh? All right. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, it seems like, uh, you know, Powell has kind of been sticking to his guns. So I don't know. I kind of feel like that, that he's going to continue to do that. Um, Look, and- either way, like the, the only way the Fed cuts if something breaks in the short term, if you're trying to assume the Fed's going to cut rates in the next six months, it has to be something breaking in the economy where they have to cut rates. Uh, Otherwise, they're going to keep it higher. There is little incentive for them to do so basically through June of next year. Um, So it's it's an issue. Um, It's an issue because I, I think... To be honest with you, I, I do think that um, economists, even us in this room, and the Fed are, are not really certain what's going to play out over the next six to nine months. Um, and that's in a backdrop where we have uh, no tremendous uncertainty. Um, and as you can see, political uncertainty. So, you know, good luck trying to forecast uh for the next 12 months that I think that's the most interesting part is that all the things that are converging together in terms of politics, uh, geopolitics, local politics, uh, economic factors, market data, you're not going to be able to define an analog that looks anything like this. People referencing the seventies or other periods look nothing like this. So when you see the convergence of factors coming together, uh, there's there's no real analog, and so the predictability of outcomes based on what people have experienced is next to zero. So it's going to, you know, markets are going to continue to catch people off guard. Uh, so I, I think that's, I think volatility should be everyone's base case. I don't see how you resolve all. Um, and again, I, I think the, I think a lot of the secular tailwinds are becoming secular headwinds now. The, the question is, is how meaningful? Again, I know people think in very, a very binary fashion, um, but you don't have to have a collapse economically to have a slowdown, right? It's, it's not 08. It's not, you know, it's not dot com, even though that wasn't that bad, uh, generally from an economic standpoint. It's its own thing, and it's it's not going to be you know, crushing to the economy. It's not going to be crushing to the consumer, but it's going to be a slowdown and we'll have to define it in two phases. There's the initial slowdown. And then once you're in it, if you are in a recession, you can only define the magnitude of a recession once you're in it, because then you know the reaction function to it. Um, That's, that's what, that's where we're heading into. 
Uh, I don't see how we avoid slowing down. Um, it's just how quickly do we get there and, and, you know, how does it play out is where it gets unique. Uh, every recession kind of tends to have its own story. And so that's the hard to, hard to predict value here going forward. But yeah, that's where I'm at. All right, Deer Point. Deer Point's got his hand up, so let's hear. It. He's got something to say, I think. No, I was, I was actually going to talk about rates. Uh, all right. Well, I mean, I didn't really have much to add to Jerome Powell because I think you know what what you said is is nailing it. So I mean, um, and here comes Neely back. So, um, but yeah, dear, if you want to talk about rates a little bit, and then maybe we can get to the jobs report from Neely. When, uh, yeah, because I, I know that, like, obviously, you know, I, I guess the first thing is, like, there's been a lot of chasing the steepening, right? And so recent flows have all been biased to larger um, adding of, of new short risks. So I think, like, this week, that's been in, like, the 95th percentile. I mean, it's only been two days. But so what we're essentially seeing is, like, the, the cheapening has been driven by large addition of new short risk across the curve. So I think we got 25 million um, thus far. Um, and so like positioning continues to kind of build short um, and is now kind of in, you know, areas in which that I would say are, are probably slightly overextended. Um even though some people might argue that short positioning is not quite short enough. Um, but it does seem that, you know, the market is chasing this move, which makes the profit buffer small. Um, I think, you know, right now it's like 10 basis points with. But the chasing rate. isn't discretionary. It's, it's mechanical. It's CTAs. Positioning is based on trend and momentum. It's not based on discretionary managers who are getting shorter here. The, the discretionary isn't any shorter. Uh, the belly or the long end of the curve than they were three months ago. It's coming because of the sell-off and, CT and CTAs are going to play the momentum, and so that's what's happening. Momentum has worked for several months, and that's what's happening right now. Yeah, um, that I don't disagree with. Um, but, I mean, like I was saying, I mean, the profit buffer um, is relatively small, right? It's like at like 10 basis points. And, you know, I think that richening to be driven by is, is going to be driven by like this, this whole short term profit take, but on the curve, um, the market, um, I think has been building into steepeners and, and fives thirties. Um, I think those on the onside are at like negative five bips. Um, and so, I mean, I, I do think that if we start to look at the, the, overall rates markets. I mean, things are extremely interesting. And I mean, even if you move outside of the treasury market and then you start to look at the swaps market, I mean, even with where, you know, treasuries are trading right now, I mean, like in theory, swaps should be trading like plus, you know, 85 basis points, but those are still pinned at like almost zero. And I, I mean, I guess some people could like, and I, I did a post on that earlier. I mean, I guess you know, you can make the argument that this is a function of the fact that covered interest rate parity arbitrage essentially no longer exists. And so as a function of that, you know, things within covered interest rate parity swap spreads and, 
you know, uh, cross currency swaps, et cetera, have all had these wacky deviations. Um, but I mean, within the overall rates markets, I do think that there's going to be a lot of things that are going to be very interesting. And, you know, um, what's his uh, name? Michael Howell put out a really interesting piece on the movement um, in yields that's essentially saying that a majority of that movement has actually come from the change in term premiums. But I mean, again, even at that aspect, I mean, term premiums are what, negative 40 or 50 basis points on the long end. So, I mean, I, I do think that most of this is now just being driven by, I would argue, overall momentum. Um, but I, I what think. What about it, risk parity? What about how big, how big, how much of this is risk parity having to effectively de risk? Yeah, I think that that's probably also a big driver. I mean, I, I think that it becomes extremely like multivariable when we're starting to look at rates markets. Um, but like from what the the work that Michael Howell does, and I, I mean, I, I think that he does like pretty decent work on tracking of some of these flows. Um, their whole thing was that I, I think it was like 60 some odd percent. I'll have to go back and find the tweet um, has thus far been driven by movements in term premium. But yeah, I would I would agree. Risk parity is probably a, a big aspect as well. Yeah, I, I just I, I don't understand where um, I, I would I would find it very challenging to trade rates here, but even more challenging is to get comfortable with the perception about taking risk. I mean, we've lived in a framework where everyone's accustomed to buying dips and and uh, dealing with a zero rate environment. It, it just sounds so mechanical for people to be like, oh, we get a 10% sell-off by equities once again. Uh, you know, I'm going to lean on the side of like the next, you know, year is different. And so, you know, be careful if you're in the buy the dip camp. It may not work as well as you think. Yeah, I know the stir traders have done extremely well. I, I mean, I guess people that were doing back spreads saying like, okay, essentially I'll sell you one rate cut, like, you know, because at, at some point like OIS and so for we're all pricing and rate cuts. And so the guys who were like, I'll sell you one rate cut and buy back two, you know, let's say two years from now made a shit ton of money on that. Um, but absent that, I, I do think that like, even within the rates markets, things are starting to die down. And off, obviously you have like crazy levels of volatility anyways. I mean, like, I don't what a one month, um, into like a five-year swaption, I think is trading at like 160 vols. I mean, it's it's fucking ridiculous. Um, but I, I also think that that's a function of like massive just illiquidity within rates markets. But um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, I, I think that volatility, and I think that's what you were saying, Jerome, earlier is, is probably going to be absolutely juiced for the rest of the year. Yeah, I don't think volatility is slowing down anytime soon, but we got Neely back up here. So Neely, how's it going? Um, I want to talk about the Jolts report. Uh, so I want to hear your, your breakdown of it. Um, it's going to be sorely disappointing to you, Brandon. That's okay. But I did want to say to Bill, sorry that I dropped down. I wanted to say thank you for coming up and explaining all of that around the property taxes. Um, that is really helpful for me to have that perspective. 
Um, so, you know, I've Jolt's pre-pandemic, I think, was a more useful tool than what it is now. Um, it's just it continues to be exhibiting poor data quality, low response rates. Uh, so, you know, whether the the data worked for or against a narrative that I would be aligned with. It's just it's just intellectually dishonest, I think, to or not even dishonest, irresponsible to kind of wholly wrap yourself up in the Jolts report right now. It's it's among the lower response rates of all the BLS surveys. So I I just I don't I didn't put much weight into it. I mean, obviously, I read through the release. I looked at the the data set that I look at is the not seasonally adjusted data not the seasonally adjusted data and, and kind of really looking at some of the year-over-year trends out of that data set. One thing that stood out to me in looking at that by industry, as you as you may know, um, so for, for the BLS uh, industries, you can have uh, very granular data typically, like in, in traditional, the big daddy jobs report. Like down to you can you can actually find like how many pastry bakers are there? Okay, like it's it's extremely granular on the bigger data set. On Jolts, they they truncate it. They like they aggregate it to just the major categories. So for example, like leisure and accommodation, that's actually a pretty huge category. Um, but one of the things that I noticed is you know, you had like the quits rates on leisure and accommodation. I'm doing this off the top of my head because I just I just read it this this morning, kind of scanned through it. Let's just say it was like eighty thousand um, sort of quits, and then you had job openings increase. Uh, I think it was openings and not hires about like a hundred thousand in food service and accommodations. Like candidly, that could just be <laughs> more people like college kids leaving their their summer job and joining their you know school cafeteria job. Um, so I just, I don't know. I, I just, I just think that's, it's just not helpful data right now um, until they improve the response rate. Uh, data quality matters and it's just low on data quality. So it's a long-winded way of saying, I'm going to disappoint you. I didn't put much stock into it. So sorry, buddy. Neely, just a quick question. Do we get to know what you were building in Excel? Uh, <laughs> uh, which one was that one? I thought it was cross price elasticity. Yeah, no, it wasn't. Ooh, um, I have to look at which one was that. I've been buried. My nose has been to the grindstone. Uh, we actually are launching a data platform for our company this week. Lord willing, it'll happen. It's been beta tested and inshallah, uh, inshallah Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, it's a really cool tool. You basically can upload any data set you want and it'll run correlations against 768,000 data series and 92 million data points. So it's, um, yeah, it doesn't exist in the marketplace. So we've been working on this for a little while. So yeah, I, I'm sure it had something to do with that. <laughs> yeah, I've been focusing on that a lot. Been like, here, what's the cross price elasticity of these two goods? So that's what I've been doing in my spare time. Become more of a Keynesian since I've been on Twitter. <laughs> I've noticed. <laughs> it's sad. 
Bad. Dude, we're not going to have this. This is not the place that, well, this is macro. So actually this is the place to have this argument. Keynes was the OG, man. There's just no debating it. I mean, he was the one who really, I, I would argue, quantified economics. Like, like made it way more quantitative than it was before. I mean, Fisher as well. Fisher was, a, was an OG, but Keynes really, really took it to the next level. So You'll never be able to take Uncle Milty from me. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I mean, Friedman was good as well. Um, but I, I mean, I, I like the guys who, who have like the mathematic applications of, of economics. I mean, Summers did the same thing, right? I mean, Summers was, wasn't it Summers? Yeah, I think it was Summers, the one who like, essentially applied macroeconomics and then scaled it like to or microeconomics and then scaled it to macro because he's like you know aggregated micro firms are essentially the macro economy and so he applied like a lot of microeconomics which i would say is i i forgot who it was david friedman i think the son of milton friedman said macroeconomics is either walking through a construction site or walking through a graveyard and like in in actuality micro is actually probably more applicable to the everyday world something that actually has more utility than that of macroeconomics because that's always changing but there's my econ lesson for the day Little equi- economic history from Deer, thanks, dude. Wasn't that Keynes was- also a, a kind of a superstar, like investor too, kind of like the Warren Buffett of his time? Yeah, he was. Yeah. So he gets extra bonus points for that, right? You know, we could be in a whole different zip code, and Bill will find a way to bring it back to his buddy Buffett. <laughs> Every time, either that or every time, predictable. You're very predictable. Or Reagan, those are like just that's like a bell ringing for me. We got Trend Wizzo up here. Um, what's up, man? Do you have do you have something you want to add or or talk about? I want to talk about what's happening in the with the banking sector. Why why are their stocks plunging? Two reasons um, with the January. Uh, reset of the regulations, there's a, a pretty large uh, chance that uh, the banks would be forced to sell assets. In some cases, they have assets uh, which are <clears throat> at the BTFP uh, window. And then the second part is that uh, the, the percentage of criticized assets has increased if you look at most of the June filings, you'll find that uh, delinquencies haven't inched up as much as the criticized assets have. And uh, after that, it's usually a leading indicator. Uh, And on top of that, when your 10-year moves from 4.4 to 4.8, the probability of those criticized assets moving to delinquencies and in general becoming non-performing increases. If you listen to some of the transcripts at the investor conferences that happened in the past uh, four to six weeks, both from regional banks as well as the large banks, you'll observe a common trend. Each one of them is saying they are going to have NIM compression. Um, So they were clocking about 3.2 to 3.6 on NIM, net interest margin, and 
they're going sub three. Uh, deposit beta, depending upon what the bank's business mix looks like, is varied across the industry. But broadly speaking, everybody is being um, painted with the same brush stroke. Um, maybe a small one might end up having some credit event, but rest of them may end up writing some buying opportunity. So those are a couple of factors, though, driving the banks. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I'm, I, I'm honestly scratching my head. I mean, I know that in general equities are swooning, so you know, people are kind of freaking out. But I, I'm surprised, especially by the big banks, um, because again, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. It's all a part of the big cycle, right? So if you're in late no, stage, no, I know, I, I know that. But the Fed, the Fed is basically like. You know, people say, oh, well, it's, it's again, you know, they're going to have issues marking down their treasuries and their MBS. But I argue, why? Why does that matter? That the, the Fed has foamed the runway. They doesn't it doesn't matter to them anymore, even if they don't send, you know, borrow against them. They know they can get, you know, par, not market for them. So I don't think that's as big an issue. Yeah, no, that's because... that one is not as much as an issue. But do they have other assets they can move from the HTM to AFS and sell? If in case they need it while their loans become non-performing. So let's say um, as credit normalization happens, and in some cases, it takes the credit loss reserve up and over what was in 2019. So 2019 in particular wasn't really a good year, right? Generally speaking for the banks, because in 2018, the interest rates were ratcheted up. 2019, we saw all the drama between, you know, Trump and Powell and the heated exchange, not exchanges, I would say just one-way um, trades from the president to uh, the Fed chief. And then eventually there was some relaxation and eventually we had the unfortunate 2020 pandemic. But in all of this, the banks at that time were trying to manage their book carefully, but suddenly this kind of an event happened. Um, fortunately, they didn't have to sell anything because Fed started buying everything and the other. Now, <clears throat> the Fed is saying, we're not relaxing. They have the power to if they want to, if, so, if some event happens. But when your loan becomes non-performing, your ability to earn reduces substantially because let's say if you were reserving $10 for every $100 advanced in a loan, when it becomes non-performing, suddenly you have to reserve the entire 100 which is the loan amount. So depending upon what kind of underlying asset values are, um, if they're decent loan to value, you know, 70 and the asset has sustained its value, it's okay. But if the asset is close to 70, you had a 70% loan to value, uh, it leaves not much of room for the bank to get out of it. Um, it starts to do fire sale, not just of the uh, non-performing loan, but because it's taking down its ability to earn, but then they have to take the mark down, not on the collateral asset, which you're talking about, but on the actual loan asset. But, but even their trend, like I, again, and I know you know the banking sector very well, that's why I'm sort of asking you is, 
where are the credit issues? Like there, there really aren't, right? I know people talk about CRE. And, yeah, yeah. Percentage-wise, it's overblown. I agree with you. So yeah. It's so so and then yeah. So I, I so I so again, I'm I'm just and I know that you know people worry about deposit betas, but really since the end of Q2, when you know Q2 was when most banks had to deal with the fallout of right. know, the, the panic from SVB and raise deposit rates and tr- try to figure out what their true deposit betas were in the you know in this new environment i mean since the end of q2 we've only really had the fed raised by 25 basis points right that, that's right. it <laughs> like and this offers so opportunity I, again, I don't know what yeah, this offers opportunity i don't know where the freak out is coming from for banks right now but i guess you know it's shoot first ask questions later i guess <laughs> yeah at the moment that's the case it's shoot first ask questions later and they tend to be vulnerable generally speaking as a late stage sector right uh, they're not in favor in a late stage uh, cycle. Yeah, totally agree. Totally agree with that. Yeah, you're right. Interesting. Anyway, thanks for your 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 points of view. Yeah, that was a great back and forth, you guys. Uh, we also got Gnostic up. Man, what's up? How are you doing? Oh, doing okay. I just heard deer get baited and I was just going to come up and bait him a little more uh, with what ghost we could throw at uh, Powell. But then I got interested in the in the stuff like the banking sector and where their risk is right now because I'm having the same same issue. The only like there's non-performing and then there's you know how many people are going to have rollover and is the is the rollover I mean, I live in Canada, so we got like a three to five year rollover on these things, which is really going to hit our sector pretty badly. But in the U.S., you've got 30 year mortgages. So are people just going to stop selling or are they going to, you know, sell and buy something new and have to refinance? No, no, it's not the rollover of resi. It's the rollover of CRE or floating rate loans in business and corporate. So the rollover of resi is not a pain point. Yeah, but the the commercials getting challenged, and I know we're getting calls right. from commercial people looking for money. Right. Uh, isn't that mostly? So. Isn't that mostly a CMBS issue and not a bank issue? At least that's my perception. Yep. I mean, I'm looking at you know the big buildings downtown. They're not really held by banks. They're held by these big CMBS uh, holders. Yep, insurance asset, companies. Yep. That's right. Yeah, build. So the most of those are insurance driven demand CMBS owners for various tranches. Yeah, so I'm kind of scratching my head the same as deer. That's why I was sort of listening, going, where is the, the credit challenge? So up in the tweetness, I posted the Bank of America portfolio. They, you know, this was one of their recent filings. I'll post the one from PNC also. It's an emerging risk. It's not a here now sort of risk, but Markets tend to look forward, right? Uh, so there's a speculative probability being assigned that it would be to an extent that these deserve a lower valuation. Keep in mind, I mean, banking is a fairly levered business. It's not as levered as 2007, but it's fairly levered business. Yeah, and also, I mean, as you know, every you really have to go micro, right? It's it, you have right. to 
you can't sort of look at all banks. You have to really look at individual banks. What do they hold? What's their loan right. book? What's their you know what, what specifically does their balance sheet look like? If you can, and and even then, you know, it's you never really do know. Correct, and also earning sources, right? So, for example, there might be banks uh, in the top seven banks who may have, uh, as a percentage of their revenue, uh, fairly uh, decent exposure to uh, non-interest income, uh, meaning, let's say they might have fee-based businesses such as wealth management or corporate trust business, or someone may have a payments-based business or you know those kind of different businesses. What mix does that provide a buffer? What kind of loans they have provided to CRE and within CRE too, it's the it's the central business district segment, which is a problem, or maybe in some cases hospitals. But otherwise, CREs as a whole is not an issue. In fact, uh, up until three weeks ago, there was a fairly decent demand by Japanese insurance companies as well as uh, domestic insurance companies for uh, all of these CREs where they would do security analysis literally down to the uh, individual loan level and come to a conclusion that, oh, the CMBS is trading at a discount. It shouldn't be. It's just maybe someone is getting fried or someone is getting tapped out. So the portfolio is being liquidated as a portfolio manager uh, and they got an opportunity because those folks hold it to maturity, right? They'll buy it. Let's say if somebody got a tranche of CMBS with a decent exposure at 70 cents on the dollar, they just buy and sit on it till, uh, especially a life insurance company or something of that sort. They'll just hold it to maturity. Well, we got my real estate guy, Shane, up here. Shane, how you doing tonight, man? Good, buddy. Just kind of listening in a little bit, seeing what's going on. Yeah, for sure. We're talking a little bit about banks. We talked a little bit about rates a little bit and Canadian real estate earlier. So I don't know. I mean, I know you, you've you kind of come in and touched on, you know, the growth, no growth and those different kinds of markets. Um, and you've been kind of coming in a little bit more consistent, consistently now. So I appreciate that. But, um, you know, I don't know if you have a maybe I know you're not a broker per se, but maybe you have uh, some of the uh, I guess an insight on more of like the lending policies, like how things are going on that side of things. Um, yeah. I mean, if you have any insight on that, I'd be curious to kind of continue this banking conversation. Um, just the observation of the investors that I work with and the different groups that we're in, where people on a main street level, um, I would say mostly people that are in the five to 50 door space are not getting the kind of financing they were before. So either the products have been withdrawn or they're out there, but they're really not wanting to uh, underwrite stuff to approve it. They just kind of have it on the books to sit if they have it or kind of pick and choose what people come in and take the very, very solid assets. And think, I think one of the things that's interesting right now is that it, whether it's spoken or not spoken is that you can see there's an appetite to lend in certain you know areas like these strong growth markets and not so much in these slow growth markets so if you were trying to get something uh passed in a say b minus neighborhood in chicago you're going to have a heck of a time going through underwriting but if you're trying to get something you know in a b minus neighborhood in florida yeah, that's going to be pretty easy and i did notice where 
there was an article, I think, in USA Today. I don't know who it was. It just said that Florida uh, just went to number two over New York for total valuation of real estate. So that was interesting. Um, and uh, Texas is right behind there. So now I guess it goes number one, California. Number two, Florida. And then now New York's been pushed to number three. And then California's number four for uh, the total value of real estate in the state. So just those are some um, – that was just something that was curious that it ran across the news on. But, no, I'm just here, man, listening. And if uh, something comes in, I'll chime in, brother. Sounds great, man. I really appreciate that. Um, but, yeah, I mean, we're – yeah, I mean, we've been kind of riffing on the banks, um, you know, the potential liquidity. Uh, I don't even know. Do we have any, like, big report kind of stuff coming out um, here? Uh, I know we have a couple of people tweeting a little bit about it. Um, so I was t- tweeting a little bit more about uh, Canadian real estate. Um, but, uh, yeah, I know that's kind of, like, just unique to, to the Canadians up here, so... What about Canadian weather? It hit like 87 degrees Fahrenheit today in Toronto in October. Holy moly. Man, are you guys sweating or what? I'm down here in Florida. That sounds like a great day. Big time. It's not good for fall sales. (laughs) It's not good. It's not good for fall sales. I will tell you that. Like this is warm weather. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. When all the fashion is basically you know sweaters and layered looks and jeans like this is the uh, the the weather in minneapolis is warm like you've been experiencing in toronto and i've just been like triggered back to my cell side days of like this 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 would not you had to cancel your uh, marathon last weekend yeah the marathon that was such a disappointment for many people uh, yeah, no, it's basically can- it's our equivalency of canceling like the Boston Marathon. Exactly, like, it's been around for eighty plus years. Um, elites fly in from around the world to run it. Um, it's it was so disappointing, and you know, almost to the point. Like, I'm not to be clear, I am not trying to start some sort of like weird conspiracy theory, but it was it was weird because it's like they 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 said like, it was a last minute decision. They said, like, there was no hint of it. Like, I have friends who volunteer for it. And there was, like, no rumblings of, like, oh, as the weather report was emerging, like, whisper, 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 let's let's maybe prepare for possibly shutting down. It was such a last-minute surprise decision. The only thing I could think of is that, you know, are they using weather? Because it was on the border. You know, it was, like, it actually ended up being, like, 85 degrees. They claimed it was going to be 90. There was nothing in the, the forecast that actually said 90. Like, but Neely, it's kind of hard to have, run. Did you know? we... I had run once a five k, just a five k yeah. in New York. Yeah, no, no, no. And I'm, I'm not trying to say that it's right or it's like I'm that they were justified. I'm just saying it never got up to those temps. It wasn't actually in the weather forecast. Right. You know, could it be that weather was used as a cover for something else, averting some other design? Okay, yeah. Possible. I mean, that's the only other thing I could possibly think of. And we're so understaffed in our, um, we're literally at half cents. As mentioned in the intro, I messed up a little bit, boys and girls. So here is the little bit of a break. We get kind of back on topic. 
Um, but we keep ripping and rolling here for another hour or so. So be tu- be sure to tune in. If you've listened this far already and you haven't already subscribed to the Macro Insights Podcast, uh, please do that wherever you get podcasts. All right, now let's get back into it. Whoosh. Uh, who else? Was what happened was Neely was about to share conspiracy theories. <laughs> and the powers, like, oh the powers that be. Who said there's no censorship? Exactly. So I was like, I guess, I guess, I guess it was confirmed, right? <laughs> rugged for it. Shut her down, shut her down. She knows too much. Well, is it, uh, it wasn't that, uh, you know, isn't it Canada? They're, they're like, you know, you got to monitor all these podcasts and things now. Like you have to register. I haven't registered, but David's up here co-hosted maybe. Uh, yeah. Oh my goodness, guys. Maybe I'm, I'm conflicting this environment. Bill, uh, you and I, we have, uh, we have big problems here with our VPNs. We got to get the uh, onion layers over here. Oh boy. Really? So do you have to, uh, seriously, you're going to have to register? I wouldn't have to because I'm I'm American, but I think like every Canadian pod based podcast. So maybe you can you can sort of host David's um, podcast from Florida, and then he skirts the rules. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. We'll be in it. We'll be an American entity. Yeah, it's bizarre. It's bizarre. And it was, of course, it's one of those things that I like. I I have no idea why why we're doing this, but oh well. Yeah, so, but sorry about that, Neely. I didn't mean to interrupt you. So if you want to get back nope, on I'm it. I'm good. I think I said what I needed to say. Good? Oh, man. Oh, man. I ruined it. Enough conspiratorial talk from Neely here. That's unfortunate, Jux. It's rare. I, I, I missed something rare. I only caught half of it. I know, I know. I, I didn't catch all of it either because I was playing around on here and then it rugged it. So I, uh, I kind of screwed that up. So I'm sorry. I apologize again. But yeah, let's get let's get back into it. So you were kind of talking about the the weather aspects about fall sales, but I want to I want to get into like the consumer strength. If you've been, I mean, I know you always uh, are up to date on that, Neely. Um, I don't know if any like newer reports have come out since the last time we spoke. Um, but, uh, yeah, like kind of, you know, obviously we're, we're running into the fall here, uh, October time, pretty close to the holidays. Um, you know, uh, how are things like, I guess, like consumer spending wise sort of looking? Cause it seems like, you know, if you're looking at it, credit card debts at a, at a high personal savings at a low. So I don't know, from an outsider, it seems to me like that consumer spending during this holiday season is going to be a little bit lower than normal. But uh, yeah, I'd like to hear what you have to say. You know, we're watching it um, obviously pretty closely and, you know, engaging the way that we do in our practice. Um, I would just say uh, on the student loan component, which is obviously something you and I talked about on your podcast a long time ago. um, I think there's kind of, two different, I don't want to call them camps, but I think there's two different ways to kind of think through the student loan payments and whether or not the consumer is weathering it well. You know, as Bill knows, because he tracks this and he's done a really good job. Bill, you've done a really good job of explaining the flows between the daily and the monthly 
um, on the student loans. Like I've learned from you. So I really appreciate you doing what you've been doing. You've definitely been committing to the craft of the treasury statement. So thank you for that. I learned from you the best. Yeah, no, I mean, iron sharpens iron, right? And that's the way we roll. Um, and, and I still think it's not the purest, you know, like line item, but I think it's a pretty good proxy, right? For what's been going on. And I think we can all agree to that. The, in the daily treasury statement, basically from August and September, I don't think I calculated the last two days of September, but call it like thir- off the top of my head, I'm doing this, um, $13 billion or so, 13, probably something like that, 13 billion of student loan, just say payments appear to have gone through the Department of Education. There's two ways to look at that data set. One is a lot of people started to pay a little amount or a few people paid a lot amount. And I'm in the latter camp right now. We'll see, I'm, you know, I'm more than happy to change my mind as the, the, um, as the month progresses. But the reason why I believe that that to be true, but actually let me ground why this matters. This matters because if only a few people paid off, like basically their student loans, then I'm not really sure we've tested the metal of, quote, the consumer, because the consumer is going to have to pay back this, these amounts in, in mass this month, beginning this month. Like this, September and August weren't the testing ground. It would be October. And, but if I'm wrong, you know, and that a lot of people started to pay a little, then, you know, maybe, maybe then the consumer could have some more resiliency and, you know, holiday won't be so ho-ho-hum. But that's what we're kind of watching for right now in the month of October. The reason why I hold that latter view that it was a few people that paid a lot versus a lot of people who paid a little is because in talking with, um, my contacts of people who have student loans really they didn't even there was this period of like uh of almost like the the student loan payment system kind of went dark for a while and that people didn't know what their payments were they didn't know exactly they just got messages of like hey hang tight we're going to tell you what your calculation is we're going to tell you what your interest rate is we're going to tell you what you know your date is there was a solid, it felt like five-ish weeks that the student loan payment system, at least for a couple providers, there's a, there's a handful, there's about five, I think, providers who do this. Um, they just kind of went dark and saying, uh, hang tight, we're going to tell you what you owe. And really, in my context, they didn't really get that notice, that notification to the very end of August. So for anything to kind of have been prepaid prior to August doesn't feel like a standard monthly payment but perhaps someone who was quite determined to cut the check to pay off their loan. And then similarly in September, if you look at the September payment flows as Bill of course watches this and monitors this, while uh, the aggregate number of September, if you just look at September one through the end, looked larger than August, it really was very influenced by that very front end of the month of September which very well could have been people who cut the check and paid it in August before the interest started to accrue. It just hit the treasury in September. So it's kind of a false head fake to think, you know, like, oh, people just started to pay a lot in September. I'm like, no, I think a small amount of people paid a lot to pay off their loans because they just didn't want to accrue interest and they were being responsible. 
you know, back of the envelope math, and that's all I can offer, you know, at this point on this analysis for what that August, September number might be, you might've had, I don't know, 300 to 400,000 borrowers who just paid off their loans. If I had to just like spitball it, um, that's just a fraction of the number of people who are going to have to repay in, in October. So and the repayment pay, uh, amounts in October are not like everybody owes. It's not like a more like everybody goes on the first or the 15th. It kind of gets staggered throughout the month based on what I can tell with just kind of the small control group of um, student loan borrowers that I'm working with to get insights about their pa patterns and practices. Um, so we're just going to have to monitor this, I think, throughout the, the whole month of October to see what these amounts are, how large are they, what's the pattern, is there a rhythm, um, that's the good news is that, you know, you can typically pick up rhythms uh, in the daily treasury statement and get a sense of maybe where this is going to settle out and go. Um, but we've got we've got a whole month to observe. So yeah, no, I, I basically agree with everything you said, Neely. I think this was a very tiny group of people who decided and had the cash flow that they didn't want to accrue interest on, you know, because I guess prior to September 1st, there, there was still no accruing interest. So they they knew you know, they were in a position to maybe uh, take take a big bite of the principal and pay it down. Um, you could argue both sides, whether that's a good economic decision or not. Uh, but do you have a sense of what, like, I, you're, you're right, I, I'm, I can't wait for October, because I think this is where we're going to really see what, how much people are going to pay, right? And do you have a sense of when, like, I guess September, interest accrued for the whole month, right, if you had a balance, and so do we know what what kind of grace period there is in October before people actually have to submit? And, uh, I, or is it is it just going to be It's going to be all, all throughout the month. month. Yeah, it just depends on when it all rolled for individuals. Um, and it's interesting you brought up grace period because even people who graduated in May, they don't have to pay till January. Right, right. So, you know, there's still a, another small tranche of people who you know, have the ability to kind of hopefully get a job under their belt and, you know, figure out their, their paperwork. Um, you know, I heard reports of like the, the call centers were, you know, jammed up and I think there's still, I actually, sadly, I still think there's a tremendous amount of confusion because of how the Biden administration has decided to communicate about these things. I mean, it, this is the thing that I, I still think is a little bit of a question mark. I, I have a view, but, you know, willing to have that view changed at this point. But um, let's just say everyone I'm talking with are people who are paying. <laughs> I'm not talking with people who are not paying, right, when I'm, I'm, I'm getting in their business and they're actually sending me screenshots of their accounts and things like that. So uh, I, I admittedly, I have got a bias towards people who are repaying versus people who are not repaying. So I, I need to go find some people. So if you're listening to this and you're willing to talk with me anonymously, I'm very interested in learning this, okay? Uh, for posterity's sake, educate me. Um, but it's my sense that while delinquencies won't be reported, for I think all the way through like summer of um, 2024, there is, I'm very curious to see what the monthly, you know, payment l looks like. Cause my sense is it's gonna just keep accruing. So like, does October's non-paid roll into November's and so it shows past due plus new due? You know what I mean, Bill? And I think psychologically that could do something 
to possibly pressure people into pain and just making it work versus being they've they've literally stared at their screen this entire time for the last 41 months with um zero oh you know what do you oh zero and now you're gonna have this accumulating i think number even if it's not being reported to the delinquency to the agencies for delinquency um, and the government has also said they're not going to go collect. And that, that's another thing I think people don't really realize is the government actually, that's, they'll pull it out of your, you know, your, your tax refund um, if you don't pay uh, in a normal circumstance. I don't think that they're going to commit to doing that necessarily for this coming IRS season. But uh, the following year, it's it's certainly something we're going to be watching for there as well. So I don't know. Maybe you know what that rolling payment due might look like but no i i have i'm to me this is just just fascinating and i it's weird i'm fascinated by very weird stuff like this but just to see the cash flows quote unquote coming in and how they will come in is just super interesting i just uh i just find it very uh interesting because we, I, I don't think we've ever had sort of a whole class of loans just paused for three what was it? Three years, right? And, exactly. And it's mm-hmm. it's a lot of money. I mean, it is. You know, I I, I know I've sort of minimized it, but it, it is. It's like one point six or seven trillion, right? Of which I think one point five trillion is the government's um, is on the government books. So uh, it's going to be interesting. And and October, as you know, is going to be doubly interesting for Treasury statements because the, the state of California comes tax. to the tax table, right, and has to pay the tax man. I don't I, think. I have no idea how big that, you know, how it's, big it's substantial. I actually went back and looked in the IRS data back in 2019 and individual taxes paid in 2019 out of the state of California was, uh, I believe like, so just assume it's a similar year, you know, obviously there's more people employed and, you know, everyone's conditions right, right. And, are very and different. Total right. Federal tax revenues are up. Right. Right. Then. Right. So it's like, you know, who knows like what the numbers, but you know, just using 2019 as a proxy. Um, I want to say it was close to like 33 billion alone, just on individual taxation. And I think the other part that we don't know is how much of business taxes are also going to have to be paid. I mean, so that it's, I've heard numbers, you know, close to like a hundred billion. Um, maybe that makes sense. I don't know, both corporate and individual, but I don't know, but it doesn't make sense when you think about the percentage well, if distribution. You look at, um... I mean, this has gone around Fintwit, but if you look at Google's 10, right. 10Q as of June, yeah. right, they were accruing $9 billion for their share of you know, federal Just taxes. Just theirs, right. Just so theirs. you figure how much how much of the cor- California corporate taxes is paid by Google, right? And just at $9 billion, just apply whatever factor you think. You know, does Google pay, I don't know, like, you know, 10% of total <laughs> California you know, I mean, they're a very profitable company. Right, There's right, a lot of right. profitable companies in California and in that but, county. But I'm like, people, it's not small, okay? Like, the stimulus checks last year, just the reverse of it, right? The stimulus checks alone for the state of California, I think were, it was close to like $6 billion, I believe, right? Off of the top of my head. It was, it was like a, it was like hat size number. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't, um, it wasn't like 30 billion or something like it was, it was a hat size type number, six, seven, eight, something like that billion or deployed over the course of um, kind of two and a half months is when the stimmy che- state stimmy checks came. Well, like the reverse effect times how much, 
it is gonna happen out of one state i'm like this is i should chuckle about this because someone's like in pain about but i like you chuckling's coming out of curiosity of like you know we don't get to see these things we you know these are unusual events that we get to observe but but that's but that's you know what again i i'm gonna get into a little little bit of a nerdy discussion here but this is what makes the last few years so interesting right like people talk about monetary policy the fed raising rates but what i tends to be ignored is how the gyrations coming from the u.s treasury right um you know we we talked about student loans being paused we talk about um we've had two debt ceiling battles right i mean people forget like before this year we had a big one in 2021 right which paused for almost you know nine months and 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 it and the gyrations it creates are huge, right? Because like you have the treasury having to spend down, you know, from one point seven trillion sitting in its bank account at the Fed all the way down to a hundred billion because that was the agreement when the debt ceiling was suspended in two thousand nineteen. So Janet Yellen had to like really spend it down without issuing like again. There's enough tr- you know normal net deficit spending that it was going to spend down, but really you know. She had no need to issue any net treasury securities, right? Because that would just add back to the TGA, and that was a no-no. Given the, the... so we've had two. Now we're, we may be having a, you know, a, another showdown in Congress, which could shut down government spending or parts of government spending. I, I think these are just as big factors, if not bigger factors, than what the Fed does, right? Because, like, I, I point to the example of the debt ceiling battle this year right between it started basically in january and didn't really wasn't mid-january it wasn't resolved until june but during that time frame right there was no net treasury issuance because as of mid you know mid-january the u.s treasury had hit its debt ceiling that i mean again when you know people talk now about oh look at all this supply and how it's affecting long-term rates well the opposite was happening for the first six months right what my theory of one of the reasons why you know, we we fell in treasury yields from four, four and a quarter at the end of 2022 down to like 3.7, I think, on the 10 year was for exactly that reason, right? That supply just disappeared, right? Because the U.S. Treasury went out of business in terms of net issuance for six months. And it and it is, again, like, you know, back to the U.S. Treasury daily statement. I mean, it's all there. It's all geeky stuff that is just so fascinating. But it, it's more interesting when you can sort of see the footsteps it makes in the actual general economy. I don't know. Maybe I'm just, uh, maybe I, I just have weird, weird. Uh, it's things, not weird. weird I, I think it's hilarious. Um, I think it's funny that we have similar hobbies. Uh, the, even if we sometimes come up with the different conclusions, we do have similar hobbies and similar reverence for the hobbies. So there you go. Uh, Bill, you know, I think the other thing I've been thinking about on the deficit side, is like, okay, let's fast forward to the federal fiscal year. You have, California is going to basically double pay in one federal fiscal year, their tax receipts. Right. If you include April, right. right. Within six months. Like, yeah. so, so then all of a sudden you're like, what deficit? Look what we did. We narrowed the deficit, right? Like we are, we are doing such a good job and hire us again. I mean, it's just politically, it's hilarious to me because the, that has bothered me from day one has bothered me. I'm like, someone is being political about allowing California to pay in October because I, it is so rare to get a six month extension for a couple days of rain across an entire state. 
I mean, I have literally, I cannot even think of a time. I mean, when we had a global pandemic. Are, are you are you saying this was politically yes! motivated? How could it not given be? Given how, how that state generally how, votes. How, how could it not be politically motivated when the entire nation was only given a three-month extension during a global pandemic? When you fired 24 million people, changed the way that you did stimulus, had a tremendous uh, confusion, by the way, around how you taxed unemployment. I mean... There was so much more confusion in the lives of so many more people during 2020. And a couple of days of rain caused a six month extension for a state. I don't know. I just, I don't, it just, there's no other precedent. So I'm just left wondering when, I mean, yep, you get extensions all the time to pay your taxes one month, two months, three months, six months. It, has, it was weird. It's weird. Well, no, but it, this has implications. I mean, I, I think your bigger point is exactly right. That, um, you know, the, the, again, the way things generally flow is you have sort of the, the U.S. Treasury gets sort of most of its receipts from payroll, right, every day, basically. Um, and then you have certain months that have tax, tax deadlines, obviously the biggest one being April. But then, you know, you have estimated taxes are due in certain months, right, corporate quarterly tax payments are due in certain months. So, but we're hitting a cycle here where October normally is a big deficit month because all they all there is really is payroll taxes generally, right? Nothing special. September obviously, you know, we just went through had corporate and estimated taxes. You know, December has quarterly taxes, January has estimated taxes. So, we're going to go through a cycle here where it's not like you said from here to April is not going to be a normal cycle. And uh, to your point, I think the deficit's going to surprise people at how low it could be. I mean, again, a lot depends on spending and what spending programs are actually spent. But but that has ramifications, right? Like that, that could be a little bit of a whipsaw from what just happened in the last three months where we've had just unbelievable issuance of Treasury securities, right? Like part, you know, that's the theory of one of the reasons why people think rates are rising right now in the treasury market and the bond yields is because, you know, I'm not totally convinced of this, but I am sympathetic to it, which is, you know, we've had just unprecedented massive issuance for three straight months, right? From June, uh, July and August, we're just lots and lots of treasury securities net of what's being redeemed. And, you know, the, the market's sort of groaning, absorbing it, right? Well, that could suddenly reverse over the neck from here till April, right? And what are the ramifications of that, right? Like that's, that's the kind of stuff I think about. Um, and it'll be interesting to see, like, you know, what does it, you know, so that's the theory, you know, and, and does it play out if, if supply suddenly sort of comes back down to a much lower rate, given how big the U.S. economy is now, you know, could that have sort of an effect on rates? Uh, we'll see. We shall see. Well, here's anyway, what you, interesting here's stuff. what you guys can all, guarantee. All kind, only, only available it's, in the U.S. Exactly. Give Bill a follow because he it's like a box of chocolates. You never know what he you're is. Get. So faithful to publish all of these insights on the Daily Treasury statement. Um, I publish them periodically, or just you know, sometimes snarkily way on his. <laughs> so he tolerates. That's me. okay. He tolerates I mean, you know, it's, me. It's it's meant with it's you meant know, with, with rigor. Yes, yeah. it's it's meant with you know a nod to rigor. But I mean, where else do you find out that you know, like the the. The, the Treasury had to pay, you know, $50 billion in one single day uh, to the Fed to pay for, you know, some of the programs to rescue banks in March, right? Like, 
it's these little nuggets that come out. Indeed. Indeed, indeed. Wait, sorry, I think we've, Green Candle, I think we've dominated. The nerds have taken over. Take control, please. No, well, there's, there's a thought that's interesting here. So about uh, two years ago, maybe two and a half years ago, some of the operators for property management um, were underwriting with integrated underwriting for prop tech. So what that means is a lot of times you would have people that would just say, okay, we're going to go three or three and a half times your rent. If you're making that, then, you know, you're good to go. But smarter operators were underwriting uh, a rental tenant more like you would a loan. And so in that, when you get into Yardi or when you get into Appfolio or different uh, prop techs that are being used, Yardi tends to be more for the big asset management and prop uh, Appfolio tends to be more for smaller property managers. You can filter or click on different filters to add in ratios into how uh, someone can afford for something. Well, with all the student loan forbearance, some of the operators were taking that out. And about three, four quarters ago, most operators started putting that back in. So two things are interesting about this. And that's why I'm listening to this to you guys intently, even though some of these things with the treasury bond, I, I don't pretend to understand on the treasury aspect, but as far as what you guys think is going to happen and what's happening, and I and Neely put this on my radar a couple of years ago, and I've really been paying attention. You have two things that are interesting. So one is the fact that now we have um, some integrated underwriting where the people are having to calculate the ratios of what that does to their payment. So for example, if you have a lot of student loans and they're saying, okay, well, because you're student loan, you're getting denied for moving in here. That's one thing. The other thing is performance. So think about all the people, especially in the bigger assets. So when you look at B plus A minus A assets, you tend to have a lot more people with student loans, uh, you, you, especially in like nicer urban areas. So like you take somewhere in the cute area in downtown Denver, Atlanta, Seattle, these are a lot of people that want to live in those kind of hip areas. They want to have that downtown life. Um, because, you know, when you're underwriting uh, to for an applicant or a tenant in a smaller residential area, I mean, in a residential area where they're just doing houses, you know, nobody really, they don't have as much student loan debt as they do in, say, these big, uh, these big commercial offices. Well, I was just reading the WSJ the other day where it's about 20% hit right now to a multi-residential as far as value from where it was last year. And so it seems interesting to me that both based upon performance and based upon, um, you know, future performance and then bringing people in, it's going to be interesting to see how operators change their standards. Because if all of a sudden you have debt that you weren't counting before from a prospective tenant because of student loans, or you have student loans that, you know, uh, that are coming, that, that uh, the tenants are having to pay that they weren't paying for before the last couple of years, and they moved into something bigger or nicer, more expensive, plus inflation, I think it's going to really be in particular classes of multi and multifamily residential real estate, it's going to be a very, very big hindrance and it's going to be a big problem. So I'm intently listening to this, but I'm thinking about that for operators, especially what I would say, like I said, in probably hundred plus store units in kind of B plus a minus situations in more popular areas of town. Um, I think those assets are going to really take uh, some suffer as far as performance, because it's going to have direct impact from the student loans coming back online that people are going to have to pay. So I've been watching this per, being put on my radar many years, well, not many years ago, but a couple years ago by year, maybe, so it's interesting.
Yeah, I mean, the whole like student loan dichotomy and, and kind of that that opening up the floodgates is is not good. And I know Neely's been banging that drum for, for a while now. So it seems like it's all gonna, about to come to roost. But we do have uh, Common Sense Investing up here who has his hand up. So feel free to, to jump right in. I just have one question, and then I'll step back down. Um, I wanted to add TrendWizzo. I was looking at that chart of commercial REITs, and one thing that I've been looking at is you hear a lot about, obviously, the commercial real estate sector, and it's going to crash, and it's so terrible. But when you look at the delinquencies in the FRED data, it's just not showing. And obviously, when you go back to like 2008, you were able to see the delinquencies rise in residential real estate from 2005 to 2008. So looking at that chart, it looks like a lot of the commercial real estate was coming uh, to a head in 2023 on the maturities. So I'm just, is is this being overblown or is it just not showing up in the data yet? I've just, I, I just don't know why we're not seeing the delinquencies in commercial REITs, especially with that one chart you have in the nest, if it's as bad as everyone's saying. Um, and that's all I got. And I'll, I'll listen and drop down. Thanks. You know, REITs aren't my, my forte. Or I'm not really strong. I understand the dynamics enough of what's going on to understand what's going on as far as what that article is saying and what you're concerned about. And I do think that some people are downplaying the concern that needs to be here. Um, but uh, I don't know if Tom wants to come up, but Tom has a lot of, he has a lot of multi. Uh, so he has several properties that are, you know, a couple hundred dollars plus. I wonder if there's any concerns that he's having with that stuff. I do know we had Andy McQuaid in here a little while ago. Um, I think Green Cattle, I can't remember what it was, maybe two, three weeks ago. And, you know, all his family office work, a lot of those family offices are dealing with large um, properties. And there's an underlying concern right now of of a lot of things. And I just want to circle back to something that I'm curious about with Neely is, Neely, I, I know that we have all these issues that I was just thinking about with student loans as far as, you know, how this will impact performance, both for those to be able to rent things out that are coming online. And I think we're a little bit oversaturated in some parts of the country. Um, not so much that we don't have a need for housing, but that, that the housing that we're providing is too expensive. Um, and there's not enough people that can afford it in the current environment. The second thing though, that I was really curious about was just, uh, isn't this, I mean, once a lot of these people are having to pay their loans, isn't this going to directly impact a lot of consumer spending in a big, big way? I mean, What's that look like? I'm just curious because I know you manage this stuff better than most of us. Do you mean the student loan repayment affecting capacity to spend? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I I do think we've estimated, we've been very consistent in our view on this. We think it'll have a 60 to 100 basis point headwind to retail sales. Um, That does factor in the uh, updated save um, income-driven repayment plan as well. So we've done some modeling and math behind uh, taking into account those who would participate um, in non-payment through that program, as well as um, those who, like where the tipping point, there's a point where the save plan, income-driven repayment plan doesn't make sense to do percentage of your income if your standard payment is lower than what your um, IDR payment would be. So we've we've modeled that out actually pretty extensively, and and our um, our takeaway is uh, you know let me just I mean, we've got a I can put it up in the nest, but we've got um, a pretty extensive research piece on this. But sixty to 
100 basis points of headwind to retail sales. What's not factored into that, that's just capacity. What's not factored into that is actually the proclivity piece. And I think this is often that what, what gets missed in FinX or FinTwitter, whatever we're calling it now, um, is people just do like a straight calculation on the capacity headwind, but they don't take into account the layered events of, you know, gas prices and food inflation and childcare costs, like all the totality of the household bill coming up higher and having one more thing, uh, it it there's just this anger component that's existing by some too. Um, we've done some qualitative research, not just quantitative research. We actually um, kind of scraped two hundred fifty thousand conversations on student loans and put some put some science and rigor around that to to kind of get a sense of where people are thinking pre and post SCOTUS. Um, and I think it consumers don't spend when they're angry or afraid. You know, they spend when they're sad or happy. They don't spend when they're angry or afraid. And there's fear has gone up higher and anger has gone up higher um, as well uh, across a few groups. And th there's this other component, too, that's somewhat of an unknown. You can kind of calculate it. But there's a whole group of people who graduated who simply have never paid. <laughs> so, like, how are they, you know, will they qualify at this point? They've probably have had a job and possibly a raise and they might have actually job hopped, you know, during 2021. So they might be making more money than what a normal three-year postgraduate would, would be making. So there's, there's a ton of variables behind this, but that's what I'm trying to say. What we can calculate, we think it's a decent headwind, 60 to 100 basis points of retail sales. What we can't calculate, um, we think it's plus more. Um, possibly. So, yeah. Here's what's fascinating hey. about that layered piece of the conversation is that go back to what I just said, like a lot of times all the under, the only underwriting that's done for a lot of operators is okay. Hey, rent's a thousand dollars. So you need to make three times rent. So it's $3,000. So when that is the operating procedure of a lot of leasing agents or people that are doing the pre-approvals for your rent situation, you're not even calculating to begin with, really, if they could have afforded the property that they bought. Because you, they, and, and I'm telling you, this is way, way more common than you realize. It is. It's probably there's probably more people that do this than the other. And the other would be actually calculating your ratios and making sure that that housing, that rental payment is comfortable, you know, and that they sit there with whatever. So imagine if you already had, you know, a car payment that wasn't kind of thrown in there for consideration, and you already had regular expenses. And then as Larry, as Neely's talking about, you have these layered expenses through inflation and price increases that have just been creeping up. I really, really am very concerned to see what evictions are going to look like pre our taxes coming back and post our taxes getting back. You got to remember in our world as for operators in a lot of your C minus and C and C plus situations that you're working with that tenant around the holidays to get, get them caught up after the holidays once they get their taxes back. So there's two things that are really lurking on the horizon that are a huge concern for um, performance. Number one is that we had a landlord culture in many parts of the country that kind of fell asleep because you really couldn't evict people. And I know personally, myself, and many people that I'm dealing with, especially in blue states, um, are evicting and cleaning up their rent rolls. The second piece of the puzzle is that you have um, these factors like that you're just talking about neely where things are layering up and it's becoming more and more expensive and people can't afford to rent what they're in and there never really was a very good formal 
uh, approval process to consider what those expenses were to begin with if they should have had that property. So maybe they were already sitting very close to a place where they couldn't afford it. And now some layered uh, expenses that have increased as far as inflation and student loans and whatever else is out there are pushing them to a place where after the holidays, you know, many, many people are going to spend money on their kids or on their people um, even if it's not in their best interest financially to do so. And then come January, February, they're going to be struggling. And for those that are getting evicted then or that aren't getting caught up then by taxes coming, where, where a lot of landlords and operators will have that, you know, kind of thing where they're like, hey, I'll just wait till they get their taxes back because a lot of them are used to doing that to get them caught back up. It's going to be interesting to see what's going to happen in the first and second quarter for per- performance of tenants. That's going to be a very, very thing, interesting thing to track for us, um, for anybody who's a real estate investor currently or future. Shane, can you guys hear me? What's up, Tom? Good to see you, brother. So that's good info. You know, I I hesitated to answer um, comment investors' question because I see a little thing in the top corner of my phone here. It says recording. And I always have to be careful what I got to say because I I do own a lot of property. Um, And, uh, you know, in the commercial space, to answer that question, there's a lot of repositioning. Okay, so you don't see that kind of stuff because uh, they they reposition it, and that is either mainly going to uh, converting it to multifamily. Uh, or there's a lot of different types of conversions happening. Um, but even to your point, just so you know, Shane, when you're talking about like, oh, what do we do? How they're going to pay rent? How there's a lot of programs coming in the pipeline, and that's why most of you don't know who I am, and there's a few people on here that may have heard me before talking in different rooms and things not on Twitter spaces here but you know I tend to stay away from things that are less than 100 units and there's very strong reason to that it's because when you when you have more units and you're housing more people you're actually also getting a lot more credits available to you as a landlord so even though we may look at things and say oh no what is going to happen this and that there's actually a ton of programs out there that are going to be coming down the pipeline that they just are able to support a different nut. So I'm not too worried about that stuff. And mind you, you know, I, I own multiple skyscrapers, so um, I'm very familiar with this. And so I would say the commercial space, it's really, yes, small commercial stuff. If you own stuff less than, call it like 200,000 square feet, 100,000 square feet, that's office, that's, that's gonna be kind of difficult um, the bigger stuff is being converted and debt is being repurchased uh, and they're taking haircuts. You're not seeing delinquencies. That's interesting. And so Neely Tom actually is from the same part of the country where you went to college and where my kids live and where I'm at half the year. But he also has family in Colorado. And so he kind of goes back and forth. But see, my concern, Tom, a little bit is like you take the Rhino area. Okay. So there's a neighborhood that I live in with an Airbnb about half the time I'm here in Colorado. And We've had more, this is an area where you're going to have more, uh, what am I thinking? Uh, you have more new builds going on than most places in the country when you look at as far as density goes and so on and so forth. And you have, you know, a lot of the uh, cranes is what I was thinking. There's more cranes going on here than most places in the country. And it's not that we don't have the need for housing. It's the cost that they're going to charge for the, that housing that I don't feel like that avatar tenant is going to be out there in the numbers that they need with the current 
um, economic environment going the way it was. And with a lot of things that we've aforementioned in this conversation, so when you talk about student loans and all the things that Neely was layering in there as far as the cost going up, I think it's going to be an interesting issue. So the question is, do the people that are providing that housing in those particular spaces, and I'm, 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 I'm more concerned about Miami, Denver, and Seattle than I am some of these other places. And I do understand like all the pace and funding and you know all the different things that are out there, the TIFs and stuff that you guys can take advantage of on scale to to ease your burden. But you and I both know that you're an exception to the rule of operators, that you and Venkat and Vina, uh, Brian Hamrick out of Grand Rapids, these are strong operators. There's a lot of people that got in this space that uh, they have not, they, they are not as solvent as you guys and they were un, they poorly underwrote things. And so I think there's going to be a little more collateral damage there than um, in some, but I think that's going to be also market-based and based upon the solvency of the actual developer or builder. But um, no, it's great to have you up here, brother. And um, it's, you know, for you guys. I think I lost Shane for a second oh, here. I think we did. Yeah. So, oh, uh, um, I, where did I cut out at, Brandon? You just said it was great to have Tom up here. And then. Yeah, I was just saying that for some of you that don't know, and with Neely's help as well as Bobby J and Alfredo and a lot of those guys, we had some really interesting market conversations. Um, they would kind of give us uh, some really good insight uh, on a lot of real estate stuff, you know, two, three years ago that really came to fruition. And we were ahead of the curve of news and everything because it was a very unique collaborative perspective of Main Street to Wall Street to big equity to everything in between. But go ahead, Tom. It's good to see you. Yeah, no. And so you, you said the right thing, Shane. Uh at scale is what's key uh, because you get the abatements, you get the tips. These things help your bottom line. That's number one. Um, but number two, I can't really divulge too much, but in the pipeline of what is going on in rent assistance is a real thing. And so that is another way to offset it without adjusting any interest rates, without you know knowing that student, you know, all these factors come into play. They're going to be uh, accounted for. Um, but you have to do it at scale. Um, and so, sorry, when, you, yeah, when, you, when I, you're saying at scale, do you mean the density or the unit count per asset? Like, I'm just trying to get what you mean when you're saying yeah. at scale. Yeah. Yeah. So like at scale, meaning, okay. If that, hundreds if of that's units. the case, right. Are you still seeing deals pencil out on land values that were purchased in the last few years? Are you seeing stuff pencil out even at scale? So I would say there's some projects that we've penciled out back in like 2020, 2021, that was, they were very expensive and um, we've had adjustments in pricing, what it costs to build, what we call GMPs. They've gone up pretty dramatic. They've cut, it really did cut into the return. Uh, so, but they still pencil out. Yes. Uh, but it, it's just diminished returns. The, the, but they're also the reason I asked that is because I don't know, like I normally don't like doing recorded spaces, but I'll I'll shoot off the hip a bit. But I would argue that any land in a tier one surrounding market that was purchased in the last few years, I think even if you gave the land away for free, it's not penciling out the way people had imagined. And what you're seeing actually is a lot of people that are land owners are having to consider JVs and vendor take backs to even build the asset to get an exit out of the land. Because if you tried exiting on the land only, you're taking a wash on it. 
So the only way to even recoup most of your money is to actually go ahead with a build, put the asset together, get it cash flowing, and hope that there's a buyer out there at the cap rates that exist today. And that, that's just my own observation. And, and this kind of circles back to this whole issue with people looking at housing on these rate hikes. And I'm going to push back and say, I still think commercial is the real catalyst. I've been avoiding these macro spaces for the last few weeks because I feel like there was going to be a lot of, you know, fog in the air about what's going on. But the more I'm looking at it, there's a reason why we are not seeing the commercial asset value meltdown in in American headlines. And that's because everyone's playing chicken. The commercial asset holders are playing chicken with the banks. And they are pretty much saying they're daring them to take the keys because they're like, we can't make payments or we can't make good on our debts at the moment. And the banks are kind of going along with it because the banks don't want to trigger a tsunami of uh, commercial assets on the market because that is what will happen. So um, I don't know, man, it, I, I, I get your point on the multifamily side. My only rebuttal to that would be is that ultimately, if the rent is not going to cash flow on the debt, that price has to come down. Now, the, ca- the caveat would be single family detached housing is not the same as multifamily assets. So I don't really think it's a different metric to look at that. But generally speaking, all these multifamily assets we're talking about, they still got a cash flow on the debt or they're going to get rewritten on values. But yeah, sorry, I don't want to hog the space. Just thought I'd put those few points out there. I don't know what you guys think. Love to hear back. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I, I actually concur with your statement that, yes, it's a lot of JVing on land, unless it depends on the asset you're building. High-end luxury is completely different market. It's insulated. So those pieces are working. Other projects that I have, those land deals, I have to sit and I'm actually repositioning, thinking about, okay, what's going to make more sense to do over here for that reason, because the build costs and things like that change. However, high-end luxury is completely different. So yes, each market, each type of segment, it's all different. And so I, I do agree with what you're saying, and it's just really kind of niche. Yeah, like, I mean, I, I would just go back on this idea of even on the niche side. So I'm, I'm in the Vancouver area and West Vancouver is probably the greatest housing bubble on the planet or, or at least in the top three. And, uh, you know, the one thing we notice uh, anytime the rate hike environment sets in, this happened in 2017 as well. And essentially you're playing against the banks now, right? Because the bank's not giving more than a million bucks, let's say on average to, to anybody out there. Once you do the math on people's incomes and stuff, the down payments are usually hefty in the luxury side too. Um, and what's happening is the amount of listings that you're going to see above, let's say $3 million is it's sky high. You know, it's, it's your pick of the litter right now. And, um, and a lot of those houses actually aren't even trading above what they were selling for in 2017. So, I mean, luxury markets different but they're not stupid right i mean it's smart money still and they're going to do the math and realize that you know maybe maybe it's still better to wait it out but generally speaking the only glimmer of hope is on maybe on the multifamily side because some of the stuff you're saying i still think that's not really the whole picture i still think commercial is going to be the real catalyst on any real downturn we are going to see and before that happens i think they'll just keep you know rates where they are they'll keep inching higher until that commercial market breaks. I don't think the residential market is is going to be the catalyst here. The catalyst has to be commercial, um, but that's just my opinion. 
Yeah. It, I, <laughs> I, I can confirm. I concur with you on different things. I don't want to say things just like what you're saying, but yes, there's a lot of chicken going on right now. Uh, but that's look, I came from the hedge fund world before I was doing this, I was trading. So I, I like to play chicken, but that, yes, you're, you're right in that sense. Uh, people know the commercial space kind of runs the world. So um, they, it's a very delicate discussion is typically what I say. You know, I'll say this. So my advisement for investors is typically people that are going to move on a 2040 door or less, right? That's their capacity. They're doing a duplex. They're doing a fourplex, you know, um, manage some stuff that was in the 50 to 100 door space in our, in our portfolio at West Shore. But what I'm telling them to be aware of is look at the makeup of the neighborhood around you. So if you're just in a residential neighborhood, or it's a small Main Street offshoot of, a, of an urban corridor. I'm not worried about that. I'm not worried about this commercial uh, situation impacting, you know, those particular assets, those particular choices for duplexes, eight units, 20 units. It's if you put a house close to or in the proximity of uh, a massive work, live, play space. And all of a sudden, I've, I, as, like we talked about this, I don't know, Brandon, maybe one or two, two or three conversations ago, all of a sudden, you know, a lot of those amenities for which that person was paying more to live, work, eat there um, are going away. There is no need to work there. And then some of those tenants are moving out. Um, and now all of a sudden you have a smaller asset that's kind of in the shadow of all that and all your amenities and everything is, you know, and then all that's that all of a sudden when that game of chicken stops and that's that assets taken back and we find out where it really is going to re-rent out out, that's where it's going to be a problem. I, what I'm, what I'm well aware of having spent a lot of time with Tom and then, you know, Vina and uh, Ben cat and a lot of these guys is when they exit and when they get in and where they get in and how they do things. And so, you know, when I look at them and I look at like uh hammock investment group out of Grand Rapids with Marty green and those guys that I've known for probably almost going on 10 years now and toured their assets and watch how they do things. Smart solvent operators are positioning themselves in a really good place to navigate a lot of this, but you do have to be aware of for anybody who's an investor or considering investing um, assets, look at the makeup of your neighborhood and what's around you and ask yourself if those assets get into problems, how long until that asset should start? I'm going to, I'm going to actually add on to your point and I'm going to give some alpha on this to, if you're, if you're going down that road, which is all you got to do is sit down with your realtor and pull the souls on lot values. If you want to know which way your local market is, is headed, study the lot value, the teardown value of the lots in the area. Okay. It's land that appreciates. It's not the structure on it. Okay. If, if we're just talking housing in general, it's never the, the structure, it's the land itself. So you got to take a look at what the trends are for land value. So if the lots were a million dollars before for just a shack that usually people would tear down and rebuild, well, if that land value is holding firm, even in an 8% environment, you can be sure that the, you know, that you have a bid in your area, even though that you're still looking at further haircuts, but the market is super strong. But if you're seeing land values, and this is what's happening in surrounding areas, is people bought a lot for like a million bucks that would have only been worth about 600000 right? And now if you're looking, that's why you got to look at land value to determine what's a good price in an environment like this. That's, that's the main point I would drive home on that. I, I would say, 
Absolutely. In all of the okay, good growth or strong growth markets across the U.S. In the no growth and the slow growth markets, buyer beware. And in the negative growth markets, that doesn't work at all. Here's a good example. If you go down to Battle Creek and you try to figure out what the lot situation is or land situation is between what sold the tax sale, what sold the bank. You, yeah, the, not, not, a, not applicable to those kind of markets. I'm, yes. I'm really st- I'm really talking tier one surrounding areas. Let's yeah. say anything and within that, an hour's drive of like a tier one market. Absolutely. Yeah. If you're going to talk to me about, you know, anywhere from like, you know, Nashville, Grand Rapids, you know, if you're going to talk to me about uh, anything like Denver, Salt Lake, you know, these are strong markets. You know, most of the Florida MSAs, all the North Carolina MSAs, you know, most of the Tennessee MSAs, except for Memphis, that doesn't fit that bill at all. So watch out for that. But, you know, if you're talking about Knoxville or Nashville, this is definitely a situation. Um, so, you know, one of my co-founders of a group called Camelot, we've had some of those guys up here before, Eddie Rockensock, is always helping me keep a great pulse on Tennessee. I also think the same thing with Arkansas, with rail. You know, there's a lot of stuff that's going on there. But Jill, she's got two totally different markets. She could tell you that that, that thing applies in Columbia, but that doesn't apply in Joplin. Because, and so that's, so I, I'm glad you said the tier one and came back to that again. I just wouldn't want anybody to take some off the cuff investor advice and just go there. But it definitely is the, you know, if that's been on a good trajectory, if it's an okay growth, a good growth or strong growth market, we're going to define that as consistent appreciation, a 10 year track record of going in the right direction. A lot of economic solvent factors that are going to be meaningful for your tenant or for your people that are buying the first house or buying kind of the next house in line. If we're talking about all those things. Yeah, it's going to be really good. Grand Rapids has been one of those places in the Midwest that's done a really good job of coming back. So has Indianapolis. Minneapolis has been pretty strong. Um, And they're much different than places like, say, you know, uh, Toledo or places like uh, uh, Battle Creek in Michigan is not doing well. You know, these are totally different situations um, when you look at those kinds of markets and what they're doing. Um, I'm not a big fan of what's going on in, um, you know, other places, too, like uh, i uh, trying to think off the top of my head. But anyway, you, you kind of get the idea. Like it, it, you just want to, this inform, you know, yes, real estate is always regional, but there are some great tips here that are being passed on to anybody, but just know where they apply and where they don't. But Tom, I, I didn't know if you had something. Go ahead. Yeah, listen, one, one more point I would want to put on the housing stuff in terms of regionality. If you look at tier one, upzoning is kind of the next thing that's coming up. That's going to put another floor in lot values in terms of additional suites and stuff. So don't assume that the market is just going to keep tanking and these dream houses are going to be there for a bonanza for you. You know, if you're talking good markets with strong rental markets, they're upzoning these things for additional suites, additional dwellings, and they're very aggressive about them. So they're going to get repriced just based on additional units. But I think Antithetos has his hand up. Go ahead, man. Yeah, thank you. I just wanted to ask a quick question. It's really interesting hearing the uh, kind of the dichotomy of the crowd, the speakers, because we've got people from Canada and the U.S., and so what I'm interested in, you know, I think we're, many of us are aware of the CRE um, issue uh, we're in here in the United States, but, you know, at the same time, you know, the Canadian housing market, as I think you uh, alluded to, is, is, is in you know, much worse condition than, than the U.S. And so the question I have is, give us some, some color around the CRE space within Canada and, and how, whether that's a double whammy at this point as well. It's 100% a double whammy. The, the, the problem with the Canadian market is that we're such a small market. There's, there's very little, there's a very small buyer pool for commercial assets in the first place, okay? So it's not like the residential market that is backstopped 
by the government in terms of uh, backing these mortgages, right? And uh, a lot of this space is, is dominated by very few players. So there's no exit for commercial guys, okay? And people are just kind of holding on at this point. That's what I'm saying by people are playing chicken with the banks because the land values that you're going to see are the same value that land was training at like seven, eight years ago, okay? But people have, you know, people have paid such a premium now that, uh, you know, the land itself is no longer worth what it was. And that's what I was alluding to earlier in terms of multifamily sales. There's a ton of multifamily commercial land available in Canada today. The reason nobody's able to touch it is because once you do the math and pencil it all out, the asset isn't even worth what uh, what it is combined with lot land value. And maybe it pencils out if you get the land for free, maybe if you if you get it for like 70, 80% less than what the next guy, the last guy paid for it, maybe it'll pencil out. But even then, you know, who's gonna take those kind of haircuts? So it's just a giant game of chicken. That's what I was alluding to earlier, which is I still feel that the commercial market North America wide is gonna be the real catalyst in terms of the domino effect. I don't think it's gonna come from like your traditional housing sector of like houses with the yard, single family detached housing is not gonna cause it. Go ahead. Yeah, so I think, you know, follow on question to that then. I mean, so in the US, right, that we get all the attention in terms of our 10 year uh, treasury rates uh, skyrocketing in the last, you know, week and week and a half. Uh, but really the, you know, the, the, the real story here behind the scenes is Canada, right? Because your rates have actually been increasing, you know, at, at a, a bigger clip the last, you know, day or three. And so my question to you is, and, you know, I looked at the, the economic news releases, there really wasn't anything of any magnitude in the last, you know, 48 hours. Uh, and given where you're at, right, and given the fact that, you know, uh, given the fact that you've got uh, an unemployment rate that's going to be released, uh, the report's going to be released Friday, right, and the consensus is 5.6% uh, on the unemployment rate. That would be up 0.1% from 5.5 the last two months in a row. And the reason why I bring that up is that... If, if in fact that number comes in at 5.5 or 5.6, you know, 5.5 or higher is really the answer, you're gonna have three months in a row, an average that's increased by 0.5% or half a percent, you know, within a six month period. Now, what does that mean? For those people that are listening, that's the Claudia Sam rule, right? She used to work at the Fed. And so it puts the Sam rule in play that says, Canada's in a recession or will be in a recession very soon. And so that's my question. Yeah, listen, like Canada's been in recession for like six months. I know data bros are always waiting for the data to pan out. I've been I've been saying Canada's been in recession for, for well over six months already. But in terms of your question, what it's going to do for housing, because we have shorter, you can't get more than a five-year fixed product out here. The rates are high, right? So none of this is repricing correctly. You are correct. However, this is, this is the, the caveat again. Canada is in a unique situation where we have an artificially supply constrained market. Okay, what that means is, is that ultimately, what is supporting these valuations is rents. And when I'm saying rents, you have to understand, the, you know, when you guys think about living standard declines, Canada is very much going through it. Okay, so unlike in the US, where you have houses and, and you know, a family of four is living in there, you know, we have a phenomena of, of a large immigrant population that does multifamily generational living. Okay, so it's very common for two families 
to be living together and, and splitting that mortgage expense up. Number two is we have a additional suite phenomena. So having a two bedroom dwelling on your property, or even in some cases having, uh, you know, uh, unauthorized dwellings, multiple dwellings, it's a very common phenomenon here. And so what the government has kind of done, in my opinion, is they're kind of looking the other way. They know they don't have the housing supply, but they're letting the market uh, figure it out for themselves. You know, you put a million people in the country in two years time with no additional housing stock, well, they're paying rent somewhere, right? So the market is figuring out its own way to provide housing and people are therefore able to make ends meet. Now that doesn't exist in all price points, okay? But generally speaking, I would say anything at a maximum valuation of about 1.5 million with like no more than a million bucks in mortgage, somehow, some way those people are making their, their payments. How they're doing it, they're renting out whatever they can. They're renting out rooms, they're, they're having a family move in with them, et cetera, et cetera. So that's, the, that's like a good chunk of the market that is doing that. And uh, yeah, I mean, my only answer to that would be that we have an artificially supply constrained market. There's no new supply coming because this new rate environment doesn't let any multifamily or any new housing pencil out. So nobody's building. And uh, you got a bottleneck there in terms of new housing stock. So rents are really what's supporting the valuations. And I know there's a lot of people who think that I'm super bullish or anything. I'm just very objective. What's happening in the market is um, it's figuring out a way to make these payments for now. And that's why I think the BOC paused because they know any further hikes, it, it is going to start wiping people out. But for now, it is being managed. And uh, yeah, there is, a, there is a decline that's happening right now still. You know, we're down about 10%. But, you know, like there's no 40, 50 percent correction on the horizon. None that we can see because the rents are still supporting these payments. Real quick, in Canada, is there recourse that these guys who have these commercial loans out that would, uh, you know, be responsible or be on the hook if they just played chicken and stopped paying? Oh, no, this is, dude, in Canada. OK, this is the hardest place on the planet to get capital for commercial assets. You know, if you're like trying to get into commercial in Canada, you pretty much got to guarantee the whole loan amount. You have to prove to the bank you actually don't need the money. Otherwise, you're never going to get money out of these guys. It's impossible. Got so, no, they got, they, they got you. They got you on the guarantees. They'll come after everything. They're going to be made whole on the commercial side. So when you say play chicken, you just mean, you know, at what point until they, uh, you know, that triggers the default? Well, yeah, listen, like if you're a bank and you own like, a, you know, if you're if you got like a hundred million dollars worth of assets on your sheet and these guys can't make payments. Right. I mean, all of a sudden, if you got all these foreclosures coming up, everyone's going to get the hint that prices are only going to go down or there's more inventory coming. And any buyers you have in the market, they're going to hold back. So it's going to make everybody's books worth less. And that's why I'm saying that the commercial side is really where the dominoes are going to fall first. I don't think it's going to be residential and I could be wrong. But I think the commercial catalyst will be strong enough that the, the government's going to have to step in. Yeah. No, thanks for sharing. Interesting conversation. Well, one thing to think about is that we do have multi-generational living cities in the U.S. And we've actually probably tripled or doubled that number, at least in the last 10 years. So New York and San Francisco have always been there. Miami actually was trending really hard in that direction until the last global financial crisis. And then properties became so cheap that you saw a lot of families be able to kind of branch out and get that. And so that kind of maybe watered down that statistic a little bit. But if you look now, Denver, Seattle, the, the Denver proper, Seattle proper, tons of multi 
generational family living going on right now. Boston's the same way. Um, New Jersey, you know, uh, New Jersey's always had some because of New York, but there's more of it going on in New Jersey. And the other thing that you have is even in places like Philadelphia, Detroit, and Chicago, where these are no growth cities, the problem with those cities is that in Weimar and I were having a conversation about this with Brandon, what, I don't know, Brandon, a month or so ago, where you have these black holes that are going on in parts of those cities. So even though those cities are no growth and you have technically a lot of inventory, people don't want to be in certain parts of the city. There's whole swaths of Philadelphia, Detroit, and uh, Chicago where people don't want to be. So they, you know, not every, you know, not everybody's sitting around the corner from a Michigan Avenue in downtown Chicago where they can, you know, sit there and say, oh, this is a beautiful city. This is everything that's going on. You get over to parts of the Southwest side and you wouldn't know the difference between parts of that Detroit or parts of Philadelphia. I mean, you can literally drive certain places where you'll see more dark assets than you will um, alive assets. And meaning that dark by boarded up houses, you know, either they, there's the institutions doing nothing with them or they have no short-term plans or the landlords are sitting on it till the neighborhood comes back. You know, they're not active assets. They're not act, active in play. And of course that never helps things go in the right direction. So uh, see how sorry, man, I was just, I was just going to ask Antithetus if, uh, if those answers made sense or, or not, I don't think he ever followed up on it, but did that make sense for you at all or no? Yeah, I, I, my internet connection dropped for a minute, so I appreciate it. I tried to hear it all, as much as I could, and I'll, I'll go back and probably listen to that segment once the recording's available. Um, I did. I don't know if you answered the question regarding the rates and if there's any uh, reasons that people are pointing to in terms of your rates uh, jumping so dramatically, particularly today. Uh, I mean, I'm not you know, an expert on the bond market or in terms of what's going on with rates, I'm assuming that they got to protect the loony, right? They got to protect the dollar the best they can. But I, I, I wouldn't be, you know, qualified to explain why we're moving up sooner or not. Well, yeah, in the context for that, it, it was also because of the idea that, right, if, if you're in a recession or will be, and you have all of these issues, I mean, theoretically, right, they, they should be done raising rates and, and the economy is at risk. And so rates shouldn't be necessarily jumping that significantly uh, unless, you know, inflation is just out of control. And, you know, to your point on the loony, I mean, it, it actually hit one of the highest levels today versus uh, in, in terms of weakness against the U.S. dollar. It was a 1.37 exchange rate. Right. Uh, and that's that's like that, that might be a new high for the year or close to it. So um, yeah, it's, I, it's going I, the wrong direction. I, I've always my thesis has always been is that Canada will actually sacrifice the loony in the short term in order to save their housing market and economic, uh, you know, their, their economy in general. And what they'll take is they'll take a short, they'll take loss of purchasing power in the short term, it, it, knowing that energy prices are going to be higher in the long term. And they're hoping that the U.S. Fed is going to do the rest of the le heavy lifting on inflation. So the, the BOC doesn't want to hike anymore. They're hoping the U.S. Fed carries the rest of the weight and, and they can just kind of hold on. And they'll take a lower loony in return um uh just to kind of you know tread water for a bit i think yeah and just the last point i'll make there for people in the audience that may not be aware of it i mean canada is the number one largest trading partner with the united states so if canada gets a cold we will feel some of that i think it's usually the other way around i think the saying is is that if america sneezes canada catches a cold but i, I get your point yeah, I mean, relative to our, because, you know, we're, we're having exuberantly high nominal GDP currently, right? And so I think there will be some drag against, that's, well, that's the only point I'm making. 
Listen, like I'm exposed to the logistics market and I can assure you freight is at all time low. Like people keep dismissing freight. And the truth is like we're in the worst freight market since 09. It's probably even worse than 09 was, right? Consumer demand is done. Like these guys have really done the most they could in terms of consumer demand damage. So, you know, I still think we're at the tail end of this. I'm seeing some crazy stuff out there about 13%, 14%. It's like, okay, sure, man. I mean, might as well say 20 at this point because the demand is gone. There is no consumer demand right now in North America and the freight numbers are showing that. Yeah, helpful information. Thank you. All right, I know Shane was was ripping and rolling there for a second. So Shane, I don't know if you want to finish your point. Um, and then I see we got uh, JM as up as well. Uh, but I'm I'm also uh, struggling a little bit. So I feel like I'm gonna, if uh, if you guys want to kind of rip and roll for a little bit longer, I can make it, but not too much longer, to be honest. Uh, I think I was kind of rounding out, man. I, 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 there's just there's just you know I spent a lot of time for those of you. I guess on Twitter spaces, Justin's over here sometimes. So Justin Conoco, David Morrell, these are some great Canadian voices that I got to know really well during clubhouse and during the Corona situation and uh, Donna Borg. And, you know, it's, it's been interesting to see how our, our areas uh, or how our countries went similar for real estate, but then in some ways how they're very different, um, especially on financing, which is a huge issue. I didn't know about the whole five year thing until about three years ago when I got a clubhouse and I was like, they only finance for five years. And I was like, that's pretty crazy. So that makes a huge difference. And it's a blessing of course, for us to have a 30 year note. Um, but no, that's about it, man. If there's not any other thoughts or questions, I'm good, brother. All right. Well, I appreciate everybody coming out and, uh, and dealing with, with a space that crashed a little bit and coming back in, there is part one, on uh on my page as well so if you want to listen to the beginning of that um and then we kind of got it ripping and rolling here for part two um so overall yeah great spaces thanks uh everybody for popping in and uh yeah my pin tweet too i'll pin it at the top shameless plug here um i'm very close to a thousand subs on, on youtube so if you guys um would be so kind to check out my YouTube and hit that sub button. It'd be greatly appreciated. And uh, yeah, thanks everybody so much for, for coming in. Thank you, Brendan, for hosting this space. I hope you have a wonderful evening. Thanks everybody. Thanks, David. Get some